You've got a bigger role on the show. I don't. I, we've never really talked about it, but you you now have a significantly. I mean, second to me, maybe even more than me, a bigger role on on the show. I, I got to tell you, the, uh, the the editing on your show lately has been outstanding. <laughs> so Dave Whiskus now does the editing <laughs> of the show. I don't. We actually were just talking about this the other day. I've actually never listened to a complete episode of the talk show. I don't think I have either. Well, when when I'm doing the edit, sometimes I'm just looking for uh, you know where things overlap. So I mean, I, I listen to the whole thing, but when I'm doing like the editing part, I'm just looking for it's it's kind of like uh, looking at the matrix. How long does it take you to edit an episode uh, of the talk show? Uh, like a two hour episode will take mm, about two hours in real time. Yeah, about yeah. I think uh, the, most people seem to say it takes usually about one point five x. I think Marco seems to say it takes him around three hours for for an atp well that's if the show is more than two people a two-person show is pretty easy to edit because things don't you don't you don't ever run into a situation where three people are trying to talk at the same time right yeah that's a probably the biggest problem right is when you have because you're you're unprofessional always has three people because it's you and jamie and a guest at least yeah. one guest yeah, and so I pretty much have to listen to the show like every second of the audio to make sure that things are right. And it's sometimes people will monologue a little bit, and that gives me a chance to you know skip ahead a couple of seconds because it's not like I'm listening to make sure that they're. I mean, I was there; I know what they said, so I don't have to worry about content. I'm more listening for audio and when things overlap, and making sure there's not weird background noise and stuff like that. Crosstalk is not is is a big problem. Uh, with three people, yeah, and it's it's you know some one person will stop talking and then the other two might go to say something and you get that that handshake thing of oh no sorry go ahead no you go ahead. It's weird. I'm I'm in a weird position that I am. Well, I'm not on. I don't listen to that many podcasts. I, I'm trying to listen to more, but my 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 percentage of my average week that I'm recording a podcast is pretty close to the percentage of a week that I listen to podcasts. Um, so I'm like. It all very, very close to being, you know, recording as many podcasts as I listen to, at least time wise, because I, I can listen to more than I record because you can listen at like 1.5x. Um, and whenever I'm on a show, especially not this show, but like a, a special guest on some other show, like with, um, you know, like with Renee and Guy on Debug, uh, like we were a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, when we're recording, the crosstalk always gets to me and and i think ooh, ooh, that was horrible i tried to say something and clearly it was like the second or so of latency with skype and somebody else had already started talking and it it, it is very difficult to auto or to for the guests to auto correct that like you would in real life if we were recording around a table you can make eye contact like hey i've raised your finger i've got a point to make um but once it starts on a skype recorded show it seems like everybody wants to be polite and stop but then that's you know what I mean? Yeah, and it seems like this could be solved with software. Either I guess there's an argument to be made for if everybody just does Skype video, then you're looking at each other. But yeah. even that doesn't quite cover no. it. You, may, you need like a. I guess you could you could do a thing where somebody clicks a button and they raise their hand. Like WebEx did yeah. this. But you're not but you're not really looking at each other with the webcam. You're looking at the camera, and everybody who looks at your video feed sees you the same way, as opposed to you know if you're literally around a table. And you're talking, I can specifically point to you and be like, you know, I've got something to add to this. Yeah, it's never going to be the same as it is sitting around a table. Yeah. And it always shows, too, because I know, I, I remember thinking it was a strikingly good podcast was the, um, 
the episode of Debug. I think it was Debug. I the guy and Renee have so many goddamn yeah. shows, but it was the one that they were, <laughs> they recorded it the day after the WWDC keynote, or maybe it was the day of. I don't know, but it was they. But they went to MacWorld's office and used borrowed MacWorld's, um, you know, podcast studio. Yeah. And they had so many guests. They had like, I don't know, there's like six or seven people. I thought this is going to be a mess, even though it was a bunch of really smart people. Uh, you know, it was uh, Ryan. Uh, oh, Ryan Nielsen. Ryan Nielsen was on. Drance was on. Um, you know, it was a, more than that. I forget how many. But it was great. And I just thought, this is going to be crazy. They're going to be cross-talking all over each other. But because they were in the same room, it was actually r- remarkably uh, well-organized. I'm modified by the fact that Guy and Renee and then Ryan and Drance are just the nicest people and nobody's going to try to be a jerk in that room. Right. So you edit the podcast now. You're you're doing the editing for the talk show. Um, how's that going? I, I mean, it's it's editing. I kind of like it. it. It forces me to listen to the show and it forces me to listen to the show in a different way. Like you, I don't spend a ton of time listening to podcasts. And it's not that I don't want to. It's that I don't have a commute. Right. So I don't have like that time every day where I that would be my habit. So having having somebody else's show to edit because i've you know i edit unprofessional i've done that for almost two years i edit the tv show the thing that i do with renee uh but that's like i was there during recording so it's not the same kind of listening uh so it's interesting to listen and try to make editorial choices while it goes rather than like having a list in my head of things i just need to knock out Hmm. and then the other thing you're doing should we talk about uh, the standard uh, we can, yeah. I mean, it's weird. Like, it's not a secret, but we haven't really talked about it. Is you're also yeah. um, handling the sponsorships for the show? Like, when people want to sponsor this show, they're really they're going to be getting in contact with you, right? But it's like it's weird. It's we're sort of uh, maybe it's probably all my fault. Where the transition <laughs> the transition from Mule to hosting an Undaring Fireball was sort of one weird thing at a time uh and now it's like we're up off the air and it's working and nobody's complaining at all i don't think we've had any complaints so it seems like the feed keeps working you know soundcloud for hosting has worked just fine nobody really seems to have missed a beat the download numbers are completely on par with where they were I'll say this about editing. Uh, it's forced me to really evaluate audio quality because you know, people, more people listen to your show than listen to my show. And so suddenly I have to care about uh, how, how well encoded an MP3 is. I've changed my workflow there. Hmm. Um, why, do you, why do you use MP3 instead of AAC? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I never really thought about it. I, I, my assumption is that uh, MP3 is going to be the thing that the most people would be able to play. Yeah, that's what I would think too. That's why I've always gone with that. Actually, I guess I didn't choose with Mule. When I was with Mule, that was I just sent them audio, and then the podcast went up, and there was no choice. But they, they, you know, the show's been MP3 as long as I can remember. I think ATP though is AAC. That wouldn't surprise me. That sounds like a Marco thing to do. Yeah, it seems like something I would do too. I, I don't know. I would be very surprised if the percentage of people who listen to the talk show who would have a problem yeah. if I switched from MP3 to AAC if it was more than 1%. Uh, well, I mean, we could certainly try it. Nah, what's the point? <laughs> I kind of feel like MP3 is the one that's also going to be most likely to be listening, listenable to 100 years from now. Well, MP3 is like its own brand. People know what an MP3 is. Even non computer people know what an mp3 is yeah aac might have some technical you know improvements we're at the same I, and this used to like the sort of stupid thing we used to argue about 10 years ago we're at the same <laughs> bit rate 
you know, you can fit a couple, you know, 20% more songs. But now it's like nobody, you know, nobody cares about that. Like that was like the whole point was that at a certain point when the iPod switched from MP3 to or, or added AAC support and the iTunes store was using AAC, they went from like, like five gigabytes was what you needed for a thousand songs to four gigabytes because the same quality by somebody's, you know, clearly subjective measurement, mm-hmm. you know, you could have the same quality of audio and and save twenty percent on storage. It might matter a little bit more because the uh, a podcast is a lot longer than a song, and people are downloading these things nowadays mostly over the air, right? And people want to, in a lot of cases, download them over cellular, right? right. It's like all the podcast clients have to negotiate a sort of tricky set of you know uh, uh, preferences and manual controls so that you're not downloading over cellular without knowing that you're doing it because you could blow right through a a data cap easily. Yeah. And that would be a, that'd be a rude awakening to find out that you've run out of data and it's all, you know, right. Overcast's fault. Right. And you know, and you go overseas or something like that and the data cap might be a expensive and be very small, right? Like 50 bucks for 250 megabytes. Well, that might be the whole, you know, you eat, you know, one episode of the show might be 250 megabytes. Yeah. That would kill me every time. But you so, want yeah, to I, enable it because some people do want that. Some people might have, if you have an eight gigabyte Verizon monthly plan, you might want to download your, you know, you just, you know, you really might. There are some people who really do want the iPhone to just treat Wi-Fi and cellular identically. Yeah, I I never, when I'm at home, come anywhere near hitting the cap on my data plan. But when I travel, I'm, I, I've got Verizon and it does that thing after uh, – after a hundred megs or something like that, or one, I forget what it is. It, it charges you another $25. Hmm. And I just, I, if I'm gone for two weeks, I've spent like two, $300 on data. Yeah. I, I've, I spend a lot when I travel. Um, although I don't think I spent that much when I was in Ireland. Well, the, the, cause we were at the hotel the whole time and there was always Wi-Fi. Yeah. Maybe that was it. Uh, although now that I mentioned this to you and now I'm making a note to myself, I, I don't think I did the thing I was supposed to do which was, uh, and I do this every time, is I go to Verizon before I go over out of the country and I add to my plan the 250 megabytes for 20 bucks thing for international data. But then you're like a month later when your next bill comes, you've got to go on and turn it off. Otherwise, you're paying for it every month. Yeah. And I yeah. may or may not have just paid for it in May and June. <laughs> I just got my bill a few days ago and I saw that it was still on there from april or whenever we were there damn because it's funny because you're used to i know last year at all i did the thing you ever do the thing where you get the temporary sim card because mm-hmm. you go over to uh, the amsterdam too right what do you do yeah. when you go over there do you do the sim card thing or do you just pay verizon uh, when i was living there what i did was i, I went to the uh, the t-mobile store and it's like 10 10 euros or something for uh for one gig of data and that's ends up being pretty cheap and you can run on a gig for about a month of just, you know, normal daily, like checking Twitter and stuff like that. So I just, I used a, a T-Mobile SIM when I was over there for a longer term. If it's just going to be a week or something, I'll stick with Verizon and deal with the uh, ridiculous data charges. Yeah, the iMessage, the way that iMessage bridges SMS, though, is it gets screwy when you change your phone number, with, which is implicit with putting a temporary SIM card in. Right. Suddenly, those messages that should be going to your phone number are now going who knows where. 
Right. And you might be sending messages from a phone number that you don't want people to ever send to again in the future. And, right. and you can, there's, you know, you can usually, usually when I'm sending to somebody who I know has iMessage, I, I prefer to send, address it to their email address rather than their phone number. Cause I feel like it's more permanent, but I, I don't know. I just remember that the year before at Wool, I ran into all sorts of, it was great price wise getting a temporary SIM card. It was like more data than I could use while I was in Ireland for a very, very reasonable price, but it was very confusing iMessage wise. It's a it's a big hassle. My when I was living over in Amsterdam, my uh, my nightly ritual, my routine was that when I get home, I would pop the sim out, put my old sim in, and give it five minutes to see if any messages came in or if yeah. I got any voicemails, and then swap them back. I don't I don't know what to suggest to Apple because it's such a weird edge case, and I don't want to suggest. I, I but I want somehow to be able to tell the iPhone use this sim card only for data. You know, and then just keep using my number. Yeah, like like this is not a phone number. Just use this SIM card for data. Like it's it's somehow it, it that's the edge case where the way that we as a technical culture have conflated the legacy telephone network, where you have this unique worldwide unique phone number, with just give me internet, which is really all I want. I have no desire whatsoever, zero, ever to use the actual phone or text messaging with a temporary SIM card. All I want is IP networking. And there's, but there's no way to tell the iPhone that. It seems like, I don't know if this is iOS 7, iOS 8, but lately when I, when I have to do something like that, it still says my phone number. So I don't know if maybe they've changed it to where the phone number can linger even if you get rid of your SIM. How does it work with the iPad? When you have a cellular iPad, you do have a phone number. Like, and it says it like when you go into your settings to deal with you know, whichever carrier it is that you have. It tells you a phone. Yeah, your SIM card for an iPad has a phone number. But I don't think you can ever receive text messages at that number. No. I mean, I can't imagine. I, I, that's probably just like a uh, like a... I don't know, a function of it being a SIM card. So I, I don't know. I guess it's not that confusing. I guess, so I guess what I want is a way to tell an iPhone to go into iPad mode and treat <laughs> this, use this SIM card only for data. There's also an argument to be made for give me two SIM slots. Yeah, but that's confusing though. Cause I don't want people sending me text messages while I'm out of the country, you know, cause it's, you, you, I don't know. It's not that much money, but it's, you know, I don't know. It's annoying if somebody who actually has like an Android phone sends you a text because they don't know you're out of the country and you paid two dollars just to receive it. Well, that's what you get for talking to those people, anyway. Uh, anyway, back to the the meta talk about the show. So, so uh, one reason I've never come up, you know, that you're now selling this the show, the sponsorships for this show and your show and uh, Brent's and and Chris Paris's show. I've never really had reason to bring it up is that this show's sponsorships have been sold out for a while and they're still sold out. I think they're like, like we're recording right now on June 30 and they're sold out through August, right? Uh, yeah. And not, there's nothing open until the last week of August. Uh, so there's been no reason to publicize it, but for anybody who's curious, if you're out there, you listen, I've never had to bring this up before because it's like the show's, you know, been lucky enough that it's been sold out and we have so many repeat sponsors who keep, buying up spots but anybody who's ever been curious if you have like a product or something and you thought maybe i should sponsor the talk show you can go to um standard that's what we're calling it standard.fm is the website yeah go to standard.fm 
and go from there and then you can figure out how to sponsor the show. Yeah, it pretty much just ends with people emailing me. Not a podcast network. No, no. We're we're very careful about that. And there's a I think God, there's so much discussion going into this about how can we do this without being another podcast network. Right. It's just a way to it's like the one aspect of a podcast network that that we wanted which is that it's way less work for one person to sell sponsorships for multiple shows than it is for each show to book their own sponsorships. But really what it came down to is I realized with me having to sell my own spots for Unprofessional, it, it just made sense. And you were going to be leaving Mule and and uh, everybody had this this one problem. Like all of us that are part of we all had the same problem. It's like, well, you know what, if I'm doing it for mine, would it be easier? It probably would be easier if I if I could go to the sponsors and say, well, you know, we're we're a group and maybe we could make other things happen. Yeah, it's just a lot. I don't know. Some it's one of those things where the it, a little bit of collectivism saves a lot of work. Yeah, and I mean, there's a a, a sort of tangible benefit to Q Branch too, where I if if Brent is working on code and not worrying about how he's going to sell sponsorship for his podcast or his website, then that's an upside for us. I never thought of that. Uh, let me t- take that moment and thank our first sponsor. It's our good friends. Speaking of repeat sponsors, our good friends at Warby Parker. Uh, Warby Parker was founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty objective to create boutique quality, classically crafted eyewear at a revolutionary price point. That's what they said. I say go to Warby Parker and you can get really cool eyeglasses at way less than what you would pay at uh, most retail eye boutique places. And at the cheap eye boutique places, you're not going to get glasses that look as cool as Warby Parker's. Um, It's that simple, really. They should not cost as much as an iPhone. Prescription glasses at Warby Parker start at 95 bucks, including the prescription lenses. Uh, they have a titanium collection that starts at 145 Now, if you've gone shopping for eyeglasses recently, you know those prices are way, way less than that. Uh, they don't jerk you around with upsells on all the stuff you'd want anyway, like anti-reflective, anti-glare coating. You, that just comes. Because who doesn't want that? Who wants glare and, and <laughs> reflections on their glasses? Can I have the easily scratched lenses, please? Right. <laughs> Give me the glasses that are made out of that plastic that they made the first iPad Nanos out of. <laughs> Where if you look at it funny, they get scratched. No, of course not. You want all the good stuff. Um, and this is the thing. And I, you guys have heard this before, but it really works. You think, well, wait, I do care about what my glasses look like. I care because they're going to be right on my face. I don't know. How can I buy these things over the internet and get a pair of glasses that are going to look good on me? Because, you know, you might see a pair on the web page and think, well, that looks cool, but you don't know if it looks good on you. Well, they've got a couple of things. They've got like a webcam type thing where you can, uh, and it works pretty amazingly well, where you just snap a picture of yourself in front of the webcam and then they, they measure the stuff like your your nose and your eye distance and <laughs> and you pick a pair of glasses and they like, you know, impose them over your face. But the other thing they have, and this is the bigger deal, is that they have this try-at-home thing. You pick five pairs that you like. They send them to you without the prescription lenses or anything. You get a nice little box, open it up. There they are. There's your five glasses. You can take them out, try them on, compare them against each other. Um, Already with a label to ship it right back to them. If you like one of them, you can just order right there. Say, this is the one I like. Give me this one. Then they send it to you. You put the five samples back in. Box it up. There's already a label. Send it right back to them. Couldn't be easier. Um, 
we just did it here. My wife just got a pair of sunglasses from Warby Parker. Uh, everything was exactly as described. She got five pairs in a box. She picked the one she liked the most. And like literally a couple days later, there they are with her prescription lenses. Couldn't be easier. Um, really, really happy. And if anything, she's pickier than I am about buying stuff like that. It's a pretty brilliant setup. Yeah, it really is. And, and I think it's no surprise that, um, so many people, I, mean, I know so many people who have glasses from them and I've never heard anybody who said, boy, they, you know, kind of regret it. Everybody's really, really happy with it. So where do you go to find out more? Easy. Warbyparker.com slash the talk show. Warbyparker.com slash the talk show. Uh, recommend them very highly. Go check them out. Do those work with Google Glass? Uh, you know, they're, I don't think they do yet, but you, you joke, uh, they were mentioned though, at some point, like a year ago, they were mentioned as a partner that was helping to prettify, you know, stylize Google glass. I, I don't oh. know if that fell through or if it's still coming. <laughs> well, there was though last week, they, I forget, hard problem to solve. Who was it? Uh, it's some fashion brand that I don't, I, I can't recall off the top of my head that, uh, that did release a bunch of designer frames for Google Glass. Uh, I can't remember. Diane something? Is it Diane? Uh, oh, um, is it Faustenberg? Yeah, uh, something like that. It's, that's yeah. close enough. Uh, <laughs> and, the, you know, they just look really, really like Google Glass. <laughs> everything just, wrong with There's Google. nothing you can do about right. it. Right. I mean, when you have like a two-inch by one-inch battery pack behind your right ear... You know, there's there's just not much you can do with it. It looks like you're wearing Google Glass, or you have a like a, a hearing problem, I guess. Right. Uh, I I would argue that I hope that Google Glass always looks like Google Glass, so I can spot it. Yeah, you know what? That's a, it's a complicated thing. I've talked about this with people on the show before. Where let's face it, though, that's not going to happen, yeah. right? Like like it, it, just in terms of of being a technical demo, Google Glass is is, you know, in the grand scheme of technology, it is, you know, it's amazing. It's like jet, you know, jetpacks and flying cars. It's something you've always thought about as a kid as you could put a, a heads-up display in front of your eyes in real life. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, in the grand scheme of things, pretty small. In, in real-world practical use, it's nowhere near small enough to be unnoticeable. But if that's where we are today in 2014 or where we were in 2012, I guess, when, when Glass came out, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be shocking if... 10 years from now, you can make a pair of Google Glass that doesn't look different from a pair of regular eyeglasses. Oh, I'm sure. You know, I mean, look at how how, how much smaller cameras have gotten. I mean, the, the camera seems like it's probably the easier part to, to make indistinguishable, to somehow hide in the frame of the glasses. Yeah, I think really it comes down to the, the battery. Because like, even the heads-up, the display part, there's other things they can do to... Uh, Either build that into your your eyeglass lens, or um, like build it into the frame. So like the, the like what they do in cars for the for the HUD. Yeah, like a weird projection, something. Yeah, I agree. The battery is probably a bigger uh, a bigger challenge, and the display part. I don't know. Somehow they'll figure out a way to make it so that it's it's integrated in the lens as opposed to a, a weird thing sticking out over the lens. And you know, it's going to be a weird thing when you don't know whether people are recording you or not i mean i, I mean that but that's a i i'm i think you're i think it's a foolish to think that we're not going to have to deal with that in our lifetimes i mean it's agreed clearly coming 
Um, is it is it maybe that uh, we're old fuddy duddies and we came from an era before this, and it's going to be just like uh, I don't know the CCTV camera at the gas station, where we don't think about that, we don't feel like that's an invasion of privacy. Maybe a kid born today, by the time they're old enough, they're never going to think of something like Google Glass as being invasive. Yeah, I think it's just those. Yeah, I think it's something like that where it 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 just becomes part of the world around you and you accept you have to accept it because you don't have a choice you know i think that if you went back 30 or 40 years and told people about a world where everybody can send and receive phone calls anywhere they are at any point at dinner in their car uh anywhere you can just always be reached your phone is can ring at any time and you can always call someone at any time and that you know you'll go out to dinner and there'll be people talking on the phone at tables near you they would say that sounds I would think that they would have a similar reaction to the way that like I feel about people being able to record me at any time. Yeah, yeah, probably. Or I think you know, if a version of me that would have been my age now then would probably have an anxiety attack at the thought of that. Yeah, it's you know, it's unappealing, and I, I but I'm a person who thinks it's relatively unappealing to get phone calls at any time. You know, I mean, I tend to not answer my phone usually, so. And I don't get that many phone calls. Period. Anyway, yeah, you're not a you're not a phone person. No, not really. And even someone who I want to talk to, like my dad calls me, and I like to talk to my dad a couple times a week and talk about baseball or whatever. But if I'm like out, if I'm like you know waiting in line at the supermarket to pay, and my dad calls me, I'll just you know send it right to voicemail and call him when I get home. Like it drives. I, I think it's crazy when people do things like pick up the phone when you know for for something that's not immediate. You know. Like if you know you're, if you get a call from your kid's school, well, you want to answer that right away because who knows? Maybe it's an emergency. But if it's right. you know just my dad calling, I mean, why would I do take that phone call in the supermarket? <laughs> it's the one that kills me is the people who will answer the phone when they're in the passenger seat of a car. I don't know if I've ever seen that. Oh, it's it's just rude. Because if you're the driver, you're you're now trapped in a situation where you're uh, you're somebody's chauffeur and you're listening to one half of a conversation. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, that is weird. Yeah, or like, you know, people are out to, you know, it's like a table for four at at a restaurant and somebody just answers like a random phone call and starts talking. It just seems very strange to me. <laughs> yeah, but you'll you'll watch a baseball game at dinner. Yeah, but I don't turn the volume up. <laughs> you don't you don't think that there's a similar sort of thing happening there where there's I don't know. There's the the rudeness of causing noise to disturb other people and then there's the uh how how engaged are you with the people around you? Yeah, I sound like I'm criticizing you. It's more well, about- no, it's point taken. You know, it's probably not not the most polite thing that I do. <laughs> I don't do it all the time. No, no, but, and I don't think it's really that different from somebody checking Twitter at the table or whatever. It's 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 it's, it's all on a spectrum though, and in a way, and and if you went back and talked about it, you know, go back twenty thirty years, it all seems pretty rude, and uh, you know that the devices are are drawing more attention than than other people around us i think the the baseball thing it's a comical example of something that we all do we'll all check our phone even if it's just of my my phone buzzed in my pocket and i'll excuse myself for a second even at my most polite i'm still ignoring somebody for a minute while i look at my phone yeah and we're all a little hypocritical about it where the things that we love most about what our phones let us do we think are okay 
and the things we don't care about are rude. So I don't like talking on the phone. I don't get many phone calls. So I'll blather on about how rude it is that people will talk on the phone. But I love watching the Yankees. And so, you know, I think being able to watch a Yankees game while I eat dinner is, is amazing technology. So I admit that, but I admit I have the self-awareness to admit that I'm, I'm being a hypocrite to, to present it that way. I wish that uh, Verizon would give me a zero minutes plan or like a, a 30 minutes plan. I use about 30 phone minutes a month. I would happily pay less. I don't even know what we use. I guess we use a lot because we have like a shared pool and Amy speaks on the phone a little bit more than me. But we don't, I don't think we come even close to using all the minutes. I, I think that the I, I, we're at the point, even though even if Amy uses her phone a lot more than me, we're not even close to y- using any, you know, what they give us. It's crazy that they still measure by minutes. I, yeah, like AOL. Yeah. I mean, does anybody, does there anybody who needs like extra minutes? I guess there's some people who have a job that they're really, truly on the phone all the time. You know, I would imagine, you know, like real estate agents or something like that, you know, that some jobs you really are on your cell phone making phone calls all day, every day. But I don't know. Do they, do they have to pay extra for that? It just seems like everybody has unlimited plans now. Yeah, it seems like some people have the the like it's you know hundred dollars just for the phone part of it or something, uh, but you get effectively or or literally unlimited talk time. It, why not make that the standard? Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, maybe it's just a like a, a, a holdover from the fact that they're kind of a they're in they're moving into just being a dumb carrier at this point. Yeah. Speaking of of rude and callous behavior, did you see this thing? You had to have seen it. <laughs> the the it came out over the weekend that Facebook had been running. A psychological experiment where they yeah. they took a six hundred thousand or seven hundred thousand users, and half of them they randomly tried to algorithmically make their feed a little happier, and the other half they tried <laughs> to make it a little sadder, and then tried to measure with like certain keywords, it, like th- for the r- remainder of the week, were the things that those people, those two pools, posted. A little did it indicate that they were in better or worse moods? And the answer was yes. That that it actually did seem to have some sort of effect on their mood. That the people whose feed was diddled to make them happier seemed to be happier, and the ones who were diddled to. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I I I mean this sincerely. And I gotten some feedback on Twitter and um, an email from people saying that it's it's not helpful for me to say. Uh, I my my the gist of my response is I'm surprised that people are surprised, and I'm with you on that because this is what Facebook does. So, for example, compare and contrast to if the same thing had been announced about Twitter. Now, Twitter is a screwy company, and I don't quite get their strategy. I think that the people who run Twitter are not very good at Twitter, or they're not very good at seeing what Twitter is good for. But if this had come out about Twitter, I would have been very I would have been surprised because this doesn't sound like something Twitter would do. And I would have been surprised, and I think I would have been appalled. I, you know, I, I would, but it would seem out of character for Twitter Incorporated to do something like this. Um, where at, that that to me is my point. My point isn't to be so cynical as to assume that all companies are doing stuff like that, and that nobody should be outraged about Facebook here because this is what they do. What I'm saying is, open your eyes. This is what Facebook does time and time again, and I think that's a, an important distinction. I, I think that Twitter, it would not surprise me if we found out they were doing things with your, not with your stream, but uh, evaluating your stream for advertising. They might even do that now. I don't know. But anything anything about 
like in a googly sort of way, looking at your stuff and then using that to decide what other stuff they show you. I'd buy that, and I don't even know that I'd be offended by that. But trying to manipulate me emotionally. I don't know, though. Maybe. And I, people, you know, I don't want to be too callous about it. And I think it clearly shows, it, it makes Facebook as a corporation come across as incredibly callous. It, it's really, I mean, it, it, no doubt about it. But some people, and I, it sounds like you're one of them, really feel like anything related to attempting to manipulate people's emotions is just crossing a sort of ethical line that, that just should not be crossed. Whereas I would say, isn't every advertisement an, an attempt to manipulate people emotionally? I, yeah, I agree with that. And uh, I would say that it's not, the, it's not that they're trying to manipulate me emotionally. It's that they're willing to manipulate me emotionally in a negative way. Hmm. If, they're, if they're altering my timeline to try to make me happier and it works, great. If they're tr- altering my timeline to try to make me sad, hmm. that's not okay. Yeah, but you can't do the science without having like a control group, right? Yeah, I'm not trying to defend it. I'm just saying I can kind of see their perspective if you were going to be sick bastards. <laughs> see, to me, the part that's offensive is 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 not that they tried to make some sad and some happy. It's I because I, I don't think that they tried to make people suicidal. I haven't read enough details to see. <laughs> I would like to. I'd be curious to see, like, if you were in one of the two groups, what the difference would be. Like, here's what your example users' feed would have looked like if they weren't chosen for it at all. Well, they probably probably do things like if you're uh if you're single, they're going to show you lots of posts of people getting married and and uh, having babies and stuff. Try to make you feel bad. That'd be my guess. Right, like things if you're like not that. in a relationship, emphasize other people's relationships or something exactly. like that, right? And exactly. Uh, but I'm curious, I haven't seen a lot of details about exactly how they did the manipulation. Well, they, the the guy who did it just wrote a response. I haven't read it yet, but apparently, I mean, he's going on record. He's saying, "Here's here's why we did what we did." It's just it. There's a certain tone deafness to to them that they it, that they seem to be surprised that that people are reacting this way because it's not like this was a secret internal project that that a whistleblower leaked. It's it's a paper they published in a real scientific journal. You know, they published it. They were, they're proud of the science behind it. You know, <laughs> never crossed their minds that people would be grossed out by this. Right. That, that this might be something they wouldn't want to tell people that they're doing. Like there's obviously a very strange culture there at Facebook that it never even occurred to them that people might be offended by this. You know? Yeah. I mean, AB testing with people's mental health. That's uh that's the kind of thing that, I don't know, maybe if, if they allowed you to opt in. Like here's a new program we're doing. Well, you did posts. everybody. That's what they're saying is that every every single user of Facebook has opted in, in that if you read their privacy uh, statement, uh, that there's you know clearly you know there's I, and some people have even called it out. There's even you know it, it even specifically says that you know that something about research and you know that who reads that nobody because it's opaque and it is and super long and they probably show it to you in like six point type but it is there and that part of their argument is that everybody has uh, hasn't co- you know can, can you imagine apple doing something like that and saying well if you would have read that itunes update agreement it was all there i think the the most upsetting part to me is it's like as a designer i think to myself the the way that and part of why I think that Twitter would never do something like this is Twitter. You're seeing the stream, and the value is in having all of that data. 
the value to you, like there's an expectation that all of the tweets are going to be there. And Facebook's approach, you're not a, you're not a Facebook user, so I, I guess you don't get to see this. You're, or you don't have to yeah, see Yeah, but this. I'm really anxious to sign up now. <laughs> but they do a thing where they don't show you a timeline. They show you it's kind of a timeline, but they order it however they want. Right. And so when you, when you open the Facebook app on your phone, it pushes you to the top. It scrolls you to the top. Uh, or it leaves you in the same spot and you with like a, a sort of like a jaggy tap here to load more kind of a thing. Uh, but as you go to the top, like there's no rhyme or reason to why the things are ordered the way they are. The, do, the thing at the top isn't the newest thing, and it doesn't even seem to be the most important or most interesting thing. Uh, and, and my guess is that the manipulation is that. Right. And maybe that they make things that they their algorithm says, hey, this seems like something that's going to make Dave feel good. Um. You know, I don't know, somebody like a friend who's on vacation and has t- taken what algorithmically looks like a happy photograph. This is going to make Dave feel good. Let's put the photograph right here at the top. You know? Yeah. It, and it bothers me that they would make editorial decisions about what I do and do not see when I have intentionally befriended or followed all of these people. Right. It would suggest that my behavior would suggest that I want to see all of those things. Let me curate it. Yeah. And it does seem. I, I, and I, I do think – I think maybe that's the core of what's really rubbing people the wrong way here and maybe is going to give this scandal some legs, maybe, is is the fact that they tried to make people feel bad. And you mentioned that specifically, right? It would be different too if what they did was – if they tried three different algorithms to make people feel better about themselves. And group A, it worked. Group B, it didn't. Group C, it actually had the detri- – uh, 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 detrimental effect and made right. this group feel bad. They didn't try to do it, but it's like, whoa, it ends up that if you only show them pictures of such and such, that it actually makes them feel bad. And, and can you imagine the headlines? They'd all say Facebook can make you happier. Right. As opposed to the fact that they set out to make, <laughs> to make people, some, some group of people feel a little worse. Facebook intentionally wanted some part of its uh, user base to be less happy. Yeah. The fact that, that that's part of what would make what for years has kept me from using Facebook, like or even wanting to sign up, is that I just don't get it. I don't get what's in the feed. Whereas I, I especially old Twitter, like, but and like the Twitter that you still can mostly get through like Tweetbot and third party clients, is I know exactly what's going to be in my feed. It's the tweets from the people I've chosen to follow ordered in the order that they've sent them. Chronological list of tweets from people who I've decided to to follow. And I know it's in my mention stream. People who've typed at Gruber uh, in the order that they've sent those tweets, top to bottom. And I know exactly what that is. And I know what they're going to look like. And it's it's there's like an integrity to it. Whereas to right. me, the this the Facebook what what do you call it the the feed uh, feed it, yeah. there's no integrity to it if if it's arbitrarily de, you know ordered and I, I don't get it that to me it seems like it, it why would I sign up for that there's like an inner an inner there's an inner Syracusa in me that wants <laughs> I just want to know the rules right I want to know the rules for what this is going to be. Yeah, exactly. And that's my biggest complaint as a Facebook user. Right. Well, I mean, I, I guess I have other complaints. My biggest is that I just don't know what I'm looking at. Right. Like my email inbox. I know exactly what it is. Somebody knows my email address. They've typed an email to that address, and they've sent it. 
and then it comes in, and my mail client will display those messages in chronological data order. The other thing Facebook does like that is they they show you this list of people you may know, and I got to tell you, like well, one out of two hundred, I actually know. I don't know who any of these people are. <laughs> Twitter does that for me, and it's actually pretty remarkable because I like, and I see it a lot, like when I'm checking the Daring Fireball account because the Daring Fireball account doesn't follow anybody. And they'll say, hey, maybe you want to start following people. How about these people? And it'll be like uh, Amy Gruber, Brent Simmons, and, you know, I don't know. John Moltz. Yeah, exactly. It's like, wow, that's actually pretty good. should get those people. Yeah. should hire those people away from Twitter. All right, let me uh, take a spot here and uh, thank our second sponsor. And then we'll we'll, we'll move on. We'll get to the real part of the show. (laughs) Uh, I want to thank our good friends at Transporter. That's uh, the company name is Connected Data. They've sponsored the show before. Um, basic idea: you buy a little piece of hardware from them. It's called a transporter. You set it up on your home network, install a little bit of software on your Mac, and all of a sudden you've got effectively your own little private Dropbox. Get a little folder on your Mac. You put files on the folder. They get synced to the transporter, the little device with storage on it in your house. Now, here's where it gets more interesting. It's only stored on the transporter. There is no cloud storage. The cloud is only used for negotiating from your network to outside the network. In other words, bridging through your your home router and stuff like that. The actual data storage is only written to disk on your device. You can buy more than one device. You can have one at your home, one at your office, or one in two different locations, and they'll hook them up to the same account, and they'll do exactly what you think they'll do. They'll just sync together, and they'll both be complete copies of each other. So you can find other transporter users, and you can do things like set up shared folders and say, here's a folder on my transporter. I'm going to share it with Dave Whiskus, and now we both have access to that folder. And we both know, here's where the data is stored. It's stored on my transporter and your transporter because they're shared folders between us. And that's it. Big, big difference between sharing stuff in the cloud. And for some people, a lot of you, I know this, I've heard it from people who listen to the show, uh, for legal reasons, a lot of people, people who work in the medical industry and I'm sure other places where there's NDAs and stuff like that, you legally are not allowed to share certain data on devices where you don't have complete control over the device. You can't put things on something like iCloud or Dropbox because it's, you know, there's legal implications as to where you can store the data. Uh, really works great. Really, really different from the the cloud storage applications. So if you need that or you want it just for the privacy implications of it, even just for your own personal privacy, um, there's nothing else like it on the market. Uh, they have two main ways to go about it. The regular transporter models come with, um, you have your choice, 500 gigabytes, one terabyte, two terabyte capacities. You can go there, use this code, TTS10, TTS, the talk show 10, and you'll save 10% off your purchase of any one of those devices up to 35 bucks. Go to filetransporterstore.com, filetransporterstore.com, and you can buy one. The other thing you can do, though, is you can provide your own USB drive, any USB drive, and you can buy, it's more of like a little puck, an adorable little thing. Um, <laughs> called the Transporter Sync. And it's the same functionality, exact same functionality, um, but you just you pick your own USB hard drive. You maybe even have a USB hard drive sitting around your office uh, that you could already use. 
you can save 20 bucks on one of those because they cost a lot less. It's, forget about percentages. Just save 20 bucks. Use this code, TTS20. All orders using those two codes, TTS10, TTS20, get free shipping. Uh, and the last thing, here's the last thing. Are you wondering if Transporter is right for you? Here's the thing. Buy one, start using it, and for 30 days, you have a completely risk-free satisfaction guarantee. Um, so use those codes, TTS10, TTS20. Go to filetransporterstore.com. Check it out. Buy the one you want, and you have 30 days. Uh, if you don't like it, just send it right back to them. My thanks to uh, File Transporter. I kind of want to buy one and just like stick it in a corner at an Apple store and not tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Let them host my data for me. I wonder how long. I wonder how long that would last. I bet not long. I bet that there's a sort of. Uh, I bet it wouldn't last past the end of the day. Yeah, they've got a. I'm sure they do a sweep. Yeah, because they have to clean up all the machines on a nonstop basis. I mean, I I, I think that there's like a, a checklist procedure they go through to make each one like. Store closes at seven. By by eight o'clock, it's back in mint condition. Do you think that when they close down an Apple store or before they open up the Apple store, not I mean like permanently, but like in the morning and the evening, do you think they wipe down the the devices? Yeah, I mean, I mean physically, I do. I fa- I'm almost certain of it. They like clean off the fingerprints for the day and yeah. whatever gunk was. I on think there. they do it throughout the day. Uh, that would be better. I've never seen them do it. Yeah, well, I think that's part of the magic. You know, <laughs> it's like they've got like at Disney World, they've got like. Uh, Things were like the, the, instead of like hauling the trash around the park, they just like suck them through holes in the floor that go into the underground tunnels so that you don't have to see the trash being hauled out. That's a nice touch. Yeah. Hey, so the main reason I actually wanted you on the show is the one big thing from WWDC that's left on my things I want to talk or write about that I haven't talked or written about is Yosemite. Yeah. And the new design of Yosemite. And, you know, I thought to have you on the show because you and I are, in fact, collaborating, working on a uh, a Mac app this summer. So we're sort of right in the middle of it. Now, what are we? We're almost a month month out, right? Or four weeks since... uh, From WWDC? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Right? Because it was the second. So it's it's four weeks. Yeah. Uh, We better get moving. (laughs) Are you what, what what I are you using Yosemite daily? No, I tried and there's I don't know some kind of bug with the upgrades. I've got I have a second partition set up that's running a clean install of Yosemite and that was running great. Uh and I decided okay, maybe I mean, all my stuff works, everything should be fine. I'm going to install it on my main partition. And uh I did and it was a nightmare. And things were things were broken and I don't mean nightmare like there were some bugs and things crashed. I mean like Finder wouldn't launch. Yeah. If I wanted to open a file, I had to do it through terminal. And that took 45 seconds to load. So I kind of, I bounce back and forth. If I need to look at UI stuff or if I need to try to evaluate the way they're doing a thing, I'll switch partition. I'll, I'll reboot into Yosemite. But for the most, like day to day, I'm still running Mavericks. Yeah. It's, it, I got real excited about it because for a couple of days, it seemed so stable that I thought, hey, I think I can switch full time quickly. Maybe like with the next beta. And then um, I ran into a thing where I could not log into my main account that I just created. I could use a guest account, and then from the guest account on Terminal, I could like use sudo with my admin account. But there was nothing I could do to log into the admin account, and and then it like fixed itself somehow. But it was scary enough that I was like, you know what, I better wait. But you could always uh, like do a 
backup and then run the upgrade for a week. And if you don't like it, switch back. Yeah, I think I'll probably switch on the next beta though, and at least uh, I'll, I'll still have a, a a machine here running my old install of Mavericks and with everything on it. But everything I have so much syncs; it's so much easier to to use multiple Macs now with iCloud and and other syncing services that it's it's not like the old days where it was really really you it would just drive you nuts because there's oh I need that file and it's on the other machine. I don't know. I still can't do it. I can't get my head around it. And that might just be that I'm too used to doing things the old way. Of running multiple machines? Yeah, I can't I can't run. I have to have one Mac. If I have two, then I like I, yeah, iCloud and Dropbox make it better, but then there's like still preferences per machine yeah. that I'll forget about. The other thing is that I don't think it's as imperative to be using it on a daily basis design-wise because I don't think it's that radical a design. And as the, you know, it's a month. The, as the month has gone on, I'm I'm happy with it almost completely. Uh, the parts I'm not happy with, I don't think are that big a deal. Wait, what what aren't you happy with? Uh, well, we could. Uh, I've told you about the OK buttons. I don't like the. Uh, <laughs> I'll, we can come back to that in a second. Um, but I don't feel like it's fundamentally changed the way you design a good Mac app. It's a new. You know, it 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 almost is only skin deep, and I don't mean that as a. a complaint i think it speaks to um you know that they did they, they if it's not broke don't don't fix it in terms yeah. of you know what it means to be a mac app as opposed to ios 7 which i think was more a, a significantly more radical change in that you really needed to be using the ios 7 betas on a daily basis to get a feel for how an app should should be designed for ios 7 last summer yeah, it, there was all the rumors leading up to WWDC that look, the 1010 is going to be a pretty dramatic makeover. It's going to be it's very iOS seven. That's what we kept hearing. Yeah. It's going to be very iOS seven. And when we saw it, I was taken aback at how not iOS seven it was. Yeah, I, I agree with that. They look related, but they look like siblings. You know the way that yeah. sometimes you meet you know a brother and a sister, and you're like, oh yeah, you two kind of look alike, but not like in a freaky way. You know. Well, and also playing to their own strengths. Yeah, it feels like a very measured. I, you know, I, maybe it would have been a bigger surprise if there were no iOS seven. I think that iOS seven softened the blow. Maybe, but I, I remember you and I talking about this when we were sort of trying to guess what Yosemite might look like. And the one thing we kept looking at, and and in some ways it was like, ooh, that would be kind of cool. But then there were, in other ways, we were both like gritting our teeth, like, ooh, this could be bad. Is the <laughs> iCloud web apps. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So when you go to iCloud.com on a Mac or Windows, I guess, but you get like, you know, you're, you're using a mouse pointer, you're using a trackpad or a mouse and a physical keyboard. You're not touching the screen, um, but it looks really iOS 70. Yeah, but in, in a good way, in a measured way where it, it does, it's not, I don't know. It, it, looking at the web apps, the iCloud.com stuff, it felt like a sort of, I don't want to say happy medium, but you could you could start to get a sense of how they would solve some of these like windowing problems. Because on iOS, you don't you never have two apps open at the same time. You don't have to worry about one thing sitting in front of another thing. Whereas on a Mac, you'll always have that problem. And it seemed like they were starting to hint at, well, we we're still going to have shadows. We're still going to treat these things as individual uh, structures on the screen. Yeah, but I think that that's why I'm looking at it now. I'm looking at iCloud Mail. Uh, 
and it looks way more like an iPad app than a Mac app. And it oh, oh, yeah. What's like the further you get in, yeah, like the UI of the. I guess what I'm looking at is some of the things like uh, if you go into contacts and you click to delete somebody, it it feels it's it's iOS seventy, but it you you can start to see the hinting like the way the window the like alert thing comes up the delete confirmation, the way it comes up and the way it sits on the screen. That to me hints at uh, what we wound up getting in Yosemite more than uh, it feels like a direct translation of of anything from iOS. Yeah. Um, well, and the other thing, the big difference too is that iOS, not iOS, uh, the iCloud interface doesn't have a lot of like a lot of the buttons don't really have strong tap down states. You know, pressed mm. states. Uh, you know, I don't know what the best way to call. It. I always call it tap down, but pressed state. You know, sort of like iOS, whereas uh, Yosemite does. You feel pretty good because that's that's been a thing for you. Buttons that look like buttons has been my obsession, and to me, Yosemite doesn't change it at all. Like buttons, all look like buttons in a way that I I really hope that iOS. I guess we have to wait for nine now, but I hope that iOS nine takes some cues from that. Yeah, uh, and there's it's such a weird place to to go from here, but the uh, the Google stuff kind of. It's showing if you there uh, the material UI. That came well, out. hold that. Well, finish your point, but let's come back to that. Anyway. Right, right. Uh, it's to me is kind of a hint of in an alternate universe what iOS nine might a, a direction that it could go in, hmm. where it's a little bit more shadowy. It's a little bit like a, a return not to skeuomorphism, but uh, some kind of happy point between super flat and allowing the uh, the the Z axis to mean something. Yeah, I could see that. Um, but we can come back to that. The the my, like I from to come back to something from five minutes ago. The one th- one of the things I don't like about Yosemite is I don't like how the if you have a, a dialog box with cancel and OK buttons, the OK button is already blue with white text, but that's the tap down state for the cancel button. So if you press the cancel button but don't let go, then the two buttons look almost identical. Like right to me, they picked a bad, a, a a bad look for the default button. It to me, the default button should look different from the other buttons, but it shouldn't look as different as as the one in Yosemite. Yeah, and it seems like what you would want is something that both indicates that this is selected, but also uh, like because some people are going to hit the the return key on their keyboard rather than clicking right. the button. Because then the other thing, conversely, is so that the, if the, the cancel button, or if there's more than one, if the, you know any of the other regular buttons, the ones that don't activate just by hitting return, when you tap, press and hold on the button, you get this really vibrant press state. It goes from a white background with black text to a blue background with white text. Super vibrant difference from whether it's pressed or unpressed. Whereas the default button goes from vibrant blue with white text to a slightly different shade of vibrant blue with white text. It's it's an almost indistinguishable difference between pressed and unpressed. It just seems like an unforced error on Apple's part to to do that. And it's a, a super niggling thing for me to dwell on, but it's one of the things where I, I can't get, even a month in, I can't get over it. You've, you've been, I don't know, grousing about the buttons, the tap-down state and buttons since iOS 7 came out. Or you, I think even during the betas, that's been like a a thing for you. And maybe it, maybe it really is just that Johnny Ive isn't really thinking too much about the way buttons look when they're pressed. 
Yeah, it seems like it seems like they've. I don't know. Like I have a much bigger. Um, I put more importance on it than than Johnny Ives Apple does, and even, I think even more than I do. Like it's it's a good thing to care about, but it's like I look at it, I'm like, oh, you know, it doesn't really bother me that much. It's not the first thing I'd go to. The reason I care about it is that to me, it's the only real feedback you get. Like in the real world, when you click a button. There's no doubt in your mind when you've pressed it down and when you've let it go because you feel it, right? If At least if it's a nice button with a bit of clickiness, like the buttons right. on all the buttons on the iPhone, right? Here I am. I'm, I've got the iPhone in my hand and I'm pressing the volume buttons and they click. And I know when I've pressed it down because there's a click and I know when I've let go because it clicks the other way. Whereas when you're pressing things on screen, especially on the iPhone, to me it's even more important on the iPhone. It's like... You don't feel any click. There is no haptic feedback. Um, and, you know, who knows? Maybe that's where they're going with new devices later this calendar year is haptic feedback. But then why did they change it a year ago in iOS 7? You know, I know I, I remember last year during the summer, a lot of people speculated that the the decrease in visual feedback on press states for buttons, might, you know, a lot of people were guessing there'd be haptic feedback in the iPhone 5S, and there's not. So to me, that visual feedback is all you get. And so to me, it's worth emphasizing. When we were at Build, we were playing with some of those. Uh, they had that press room where you could play with the, the phones and stuff. And they, a lot of the, I think most of them, if not all of them, had haptic feedback. So you'd tap something and it would give you like a little bit of a, a buzz. And in playing with it, I realized it's just, it's not the magic that I thought it was where the thing right under my finger is buzzing. It's just the device vibrates. There, no reason you couldn't do that today on the iPhone. Right, but that's – yeah, I think if Apple were going to do it, they'd want to do some kind of advanced thing where it, it literally somehow gives you feedback right where you've pressed, not that the whole device is vibrating, which is what the Windows phone devices do. Like I think they were all – weren't they all set so that when you typed, each key press gave you a, a tap? Yeah, and it, it's not like a, it's not like your phone buzzing in your pocket right. buzz. It's not that kind of vibrate. It's just like a little, yeah. just a little something. Like you don't, you almost don't even notice it. Yeah, I didn't hate it, but I didn't find it helpful either. I I liked it until I realized that there's no magic there, and it was just my it was just the phone buzzing in my hand. Well, it doesn't solve to me the problem. Like so, for example, on the iPhone keyboard, right from the get go, from 2007, when you press a key, you get um, like you you press the S key an S pop-up shows up above your thumb. Yeah. And it's like, so if you're watching as you type, there's this visual indication that you just typed an S. Um, because you, you, there's no other, you know, you need that feedback because there's the buttons are the buttons for each key on the keyboard are so close to each other that you wouldn't know. Whereas if the whole phone vibrates or taps in the exact same way, no matter which key you pressed, it doesn't help you know that you typed an S instead of a D. It's, you just know you typed something. And to me, that's, that's not helpful. Have you ever done one of those tests where you see if you type better with the, the clicks or without the clicks? No. I, you know, I've always got the ringer off on my phone because I, 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 I almost never want to hear my phone ring. Uh, but it seems, it seems like when the clicks are on, my typing accuracy goes up. I think so, too. I keep the clicks on. There's the, uh, well, I mean, I keep the clicks on, but my, my ringer's always off. Right, so you don't actually hear them. Right. The building I live in, there's, I got to enter a key code to get in. And uh, about a month or two ago, they, they changed. I don't know what they did, but it no longer, when you dial the keypad, they don't beep at you anymore. And without the beeps, I'll screw it up two or three times before I get in. Hmm. 
Yeah, I like the key t- key types, but there's some some people who think that that's so uh, absurd that they can't believe they they find it shocking that I use the the key clicks on the iOS. It's similar though. The key clicks aren't that much of a help because they it's similar to the whole phone vibrating at each time. You get the same click no matter which key you've pressed. It doesn't help yeah. you know that you got the right key. As opposed to like on a hardware keyboard, like on a BlackBerry with a hardware keyboard, you know that you've pressed the right key because there's an actual physical sensation. But the physical sensation is identical for each key. Yeah, but you, you, in practice, though, if you think about it, if you've ever, I've never used a BlackBerry full time, but even if I've just toyed with one, you know you've gotten the right key, though, spatially. You know, like yeah. if your thumb is on that border between S and D, you know that you want that depressation to be on the left side, not the right side. And if you do hit a D by accident, you can feel, oh, my thumb was too far to the right. You know, right, the, because the way the key presses in, right. it only ever presses in. It doesn't slide around. So depending, like, your angle of attack will change. Yeah. The physicality yeah. of it, it clarifies, you know. And that, right. that would be the sort of, I don't know what the technology would be, but if there was a way to make it so that you got a physical click or press or some kind of sensation right on the pixels that you've pressed, it could. I, I could see how that would help something like keyboard typing tremendously. But I don't even know. If, I, I mean, I've never heard of such technology. They should just put a hardware keyboard on those things. Yeah. I do think, going back to Yosemite, though, overall, though, I like it a lot. And every time I, I stop using I have it on a separate machine right now. I don't have it on a main machine. But every time I go back to Mavericks, it's it just feels like going back to iOS 6, but even more yeah. so. Yeah, it was a uh, it was like a little bit of culture shock for me after spending a couple of days in Yosemite coming back to Mavericks, and I'm used to it now. And this is it's fine. I I don't hate it. It it doesn't feel as dramatic as iOS six to iOS seven uh, going the other direction, but it it does. I am surprised at how much I like it. Yeah, it's not as yeah. It's it's funny. It's not as big a difference. Clearly, not as big a difference as iOS six to iOS seven. But somehow going back, it was harder, quicker. Because it's so familiar, it's just an improvement, I think, in almost every way that it makes going back worse. Whereas iOS 7, there were things that just took time to get used to, whereas Yosemite, to me, doesn't take any time to get used to. It's like, oh, this is just better. Yeah, there's not a lot of downside. Because in iOS 7, there's a, well, I don't know how I feel about the status bar thing. I don't think I like it. And these buttons are weird. And there's you know a bunch of stuff with Ma- uh, Mavericks to Yosemite. It really does just feel like they dialed it up a little yeah. bit. I'm curious, and I saw, did you see that Tobias Frere-Jones, somebody asked him what he thought about um, Helvetica as a system font? Oh, no, I didn't see that. Oh, you'll have to look at it afterwards. But the gist of it is that, um, I'll put it in the show show notes, um, I promise. Um, <laughs> but some, I forget who, somebody asked Tobias Frere-Jones, um, formerly of, of Heffler Frere-Jones and, you know, the whole yeah ugly divorce going on there. Um but the designer of Gotham, among other, you know, very, very popular and well-designed fonts. He, you know, spoke very highly of Lucida Grand as a system font and, and you know, mentioned the th- some of the problems with Helvetica as a system font. Um, but I think the bottom line, and he mentions it too, is that it's, you know, it's retina versus non-retina. And I've only been using Yosemite on a retina MacBook Pro. Uh, I haven't looked at it yet. I guess I should try it. Maybe put it on my MacBook Air or something uh, and see what it looks like on a non-retina display. And I can only imagine it is going to look worse. I do think that's one of the things about Yosemite that is very much 
in spirit with iOS 7 is that it's a retina-first design. It's designed to look optim. It's optimized for retina displays, and it's secondarily meant to look okay on non-retina displays. Do you think that's a hint at Apple wanting to move to or, or being ready to move to a future where there's only retina screens? Oh, definitely. I mean, I've, if anybody thinks it's not going to be all retina with at some point in the next few years, I mean, you're nuts. But I mean, how quickly that's going to be? Hopefully, it's a sign that it's going to be sooner that rather than later. Right. Yeah, that, that's what I mean. Like if they're do if they're already setting things up for it's going to look. I mean, anything, everything looks better on retina by definition. But some some things translate the other direction better than others. And I can, I I don't have I don't think I have anything with a non retina screen on it. Come to think of it. Because you don't have TV. a desktop display anymore. You just work right. off a 15-inch MacBook Pro. Yeah, 15-inch Retina. Uh, so I don't know. I haven't, I haven't seen... Well, you know, I'm looking... I'm thinking back. Uh, Helvetica was the system font on the iPhone from day one. And that wasn't terrible. I mean, it wasn't... Uh, maybe not as readable as Lucida Grand, but... Uh, yeah, it always know. worked on iOS, and it wasn't bad. But I do think it, it's going to be worse. And I feel like the same way that it did work, and it was fine on iOS pre-retina, it's, it's definitely going to be, I, I, I think there'll be complaints about it though, when Yosemite actually ships. I wonder if Apple's new philosophy about non-retina people is the same as mine. Where I was like, yeah, who cares? I don't think so. Not yet. I think maybe on iOS it is. And I think that's, you know, I feel like the only people who they really care about vaguely, it would probably be owners of the original iPad mini because yeah. that device is only, uh, they were still being year. sold a year ago. Yeah, and I well, you could still buy them now, right? Isn't oh, can you? I think so. I think yeah. that that's like the low end iPad. Let me see. Um, that's the last one that I feel like they really care about because the last iPhone that was pre Retina was three GS. I mean, that's forget about it. I mean, you know, God bless you for if you're still rocking your three GS. But <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe they're not. I don't know. Let's see here. Compare. Yeah, they still sell the iPad Mini without Retina display. Sixteen gigabytes, two ninety nine. Oh. So, but it, you know, I've Jonas uses my old one, and it's not bad. I mean, it's you know, it's it's you know, I don't know that it's any worse than the, the than the the Helvetica was as the system font on iOS six. Maybe the, some of the lack of contrast makes it less showy offy, but. Yeah, you know, it's like I wrote about when they first went Retina. It's that I, I think some of those the visual trickery, making buttons look lickable and putting a lot of, you know, lighting effects on the buttons and stuff, was all to sort of make the thing look better than the display was capable of really looking. Whereas with Retina displays, you can just let it actually look good just by being right. type on a plain background. Right, and, and I'm not saying that they're. Uh this would be in in the spirit of, well, who cares what it looks like on a, a non-retina screen so much as it is. I don't think Apple at this point, just going by what they've done with Helvetica as a system font in Yosemite, I don't think that they're willing to sacrifice what they think is the path forward to make things just a little bit better on non-retina screens. Hmm. I will say this using Yosemite and I, you know, I've used it a fair amount. I don't have it on my main machine yet, but I've used it as much as I can in the last month. Uh, third party apps, it it varies. It actually really varies uh, how much they get automatically. None look perfect automatically, but some look a lot better than others. And you can see 
who was specifying uh, here, <laughs> display this list in the system font. Yeah. And then there's others who said, display this list in Lucidagrand, 12 point. Uh, and the ones who were saying, just give me the system font, they get Helvetica Neue automatically, and it looks pretty good. And the ones who were using Lucida, it just looks old. And then, you know, some of the icons translate a little better, like toolbar icons translate better than others. Some don't. Um, but I'm really curious. And, and it's, to me, it's a lot like the shift from iOS where, you, you know, app makers have got to get on the, you know, got to get updates out the door and make their stuff look right on Yosemite. But I'm curious if it's going to take longer for third party developers to update their Mac apps just in the way that, because they're too busy updating their iPhone apps first. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I mean, you if you're smart and the convention is that you're supposed to stick to the the APIs as much as you can because if Apple changes something out from under you, you get that change for free. This is why you're supposed to use like a stock source list and not roll your own. Um, so the funny one to me, my favorite example of an app that looks even better in Yosemite is NetNewsWire 3. <laughs> I don't know that I looked at NetNewsWire 3. I opened up NetNewsWire 3 and it looks on a, on a retina screen. It's got some, you know, weird issues on Mavericks huh. and it just, you know, it looks, it looks not bad. I still use it as my daily newsreader, but it looks dated. And I opened it up on, on Yosemite just because I wanted to you know, read my feeds. I opened it up and it looks great. Because the fonts it, are all Helvetica. Yeah, everything's in Helvetica and the source list is the, uh, the vibrancy transparency oh, stuff. Oh, really? Yeah, it's oh. one, of the most, uh, one of the most Yosemite-ready apps I had on my Mac. Yeah, you know what? That is another thing that I've noticed is that it's clear. I didn't even know there was such a thing, but there must, obviously, in hindsight, there must be like a, give me a default-looking sidebar. Mm-hmm. And those apps look pretty good on Yosemite and it's translucent already. And then there's others where they've got like a blue background with, uh, you know, the wrong font and it just looks so dated. It looks foreign. Well, it's, it reminds me of um, template images. So the, the icons that you create for a sidebar source list on the Mac and the things uh, like a, a tab bar based app on the iPhone, you, instead of making an icon that looks like what the end user sees, you just make uh, an alpha an alpha channel icon where the, the gradient is, is what determines the, the alpha. So whatever Apple does to update the OS, whatever the new style is, your, your app running on that version of the OS will look like every other. Hmm. So you're never stuck. Like if you were to go in and make, uh, like looking right now at my screen, I see Finder in Mavericks has that like uh, all of the, the sort of monochrome, slightly, uh, slightly washed out icons along the side, like the, uh, the iTunes style. Uh, those are all just, you know, flat black and white alpha channel, uh, probably JPEGs or PNGs sitting somewhere and then the second the os gets updated they all look the new way right i think bottom line wrapping up yosemite i i really like it i think that it's it's exactly exactly what apple should have done i don't think anything more radical was called for uh and i think it's going to prove to be far less controversial I i still think there's some people who are who consider ios 7 controversial Right, I, there are people who refuse to upgrade still. Yeah, I don't think that that's going to happen with Yosemite, I, just because of the appearance. And and other than the appearance, it's not really that different. You know, they haven't really changed any of the other rules. Uh, no, but I do feel like, uh, especially with 
we we don't see any of this really today because it's all betas. But uh, the extension stuff and the handoff, I think this to me pushes towards that that ideal of. Ages ago, a friend of mine told me that his vision for computers in the future would be like you carry the thing around, like your phone or whatever it is, and you can use it the way it is. And when you get to work, you you dock it somehow, and then the the interface changes so that it's it's custom, it's tailored to the way you're working. Right, and now all of a sudden, it can drive a thirty inch display on your desk. Right, right, and where Apple Apple's doing it, and I think an even more clever way, which is allowing you to pass what really matters, which is the state and the data back and forth. And let the the machines be their own thing. Yeah, because at a certain, and who knows? I mean, I I don't know. I feel like that dockable idea. It always it sounds good, but it always runs into problems. And and for example, your desktop computer, if you have a power source, even if it's a laptop, but if you can put a power source into it at your desk, you you want to be able to have apps running and consuming significant amount of of CPU in the background. Right. Whereas your phone, you'd never want that. Right. Right. So what do you do? Like you can say, okay, when I dock the thing, it, it runs like a real Unix computer and applications in the background can just do what they want. And then I want to go to the bathroom and take my phone with me and just pick it up. Then what happens to all those processes that were running? Like all of a sudden now they're told, nope, nope. Now you're, you're going to be put to sleep in uh, 10 milliseconds. Hurry up and hurry up and finish. <laughs> and the uh, the I, I mean, you could do things like the dock itself has additional CPU and memory resources, and maybe those processes can attach to the dock. It just gets super like the kind of people who really like running Linux would mm. would enjoy that. Yeah, I think that this is a better approach, and it's you know we can even spin it as we talk about some of the Google I/O stuff, and it's you know a similar approach, but uh, that Google has that it's not one machine that you take everywhere, but like one set of state that's available everywhere that it's your state that syncs, not the actual computer. Right. And I, I was eight and Yosemite to me feel like we were finally there or, or we're very, very close to the, your, your iPad and your iPhone and your Mac all work together. Yeah. One question people have been asking me, I actually don't know the answer because I don't have a spare iPad to run iOS 8 on, and I'm a little hesitant to put it on, on my iPad. Uh, I'm running it full-time on mine. It's great. Uh, you know, I got to see it, because I've had problems in the past years where the MLB app doesn't work on the beta, and no. it's like the only app that I really can't do without over summer on the iPad. So I have to see. But um, I'm the wrong guy to ask about that. Well, people have been asking, will this work between continuity, like handoff? Like, I've started an email. Can you hand it off from an iPhone to an iPad? Or is it only oh, I don't know. from Mac to iOS? I think it's only Mac to iOS. I don't think you can go iOS to iOS. But it seemed, that seems like something that, that it could be like a, a 8.1 update or something later in the year. It makes sense, you know, that you might want to somebody, you know, hey, I want to go from this small machine, the iPhone, where I'm pecking this thing out with my thumbs to the big machine where I do my email. The big, your, somebody else's big machine for email might be their iPad. Right. So I could see it coming. I don't think that it's there yet, though. I could go test it. Well, don't don't bother. Yeah. Tweet it later. <laughs> I am uh, I'm impressed with iOS eight. I'm running iOS eight on my phone, my carry phone, my day phone. Yeah. And uh, on my my day iPad, I've only got the one iPad, but yeah, my Retina iPad Mini. Uh, both are running iOS eight full time, and both there. I mean, there's weird stuff like um, 
I, I got to reboot my phone every couple of days because things just get wonky. Yeah, it's, I'm glad you brought that up because I've been meaning to talk about this. Um, so what I do is I have I still have my year old iPhone five, which is also on Verizon. So I just if I and I have iOS eight on that device, and I just take my SIM card out of my daily iPhone five S, put it in the five, and then it, I can just use that phone all day. And I've I've spent a week using just that, and it's pretty good. That's a smart way to do it. Yeah, but you have to make sure, you know, it, it, I couldn't do it the year before, though, because last year was the year where I had switched from AT&T to Verizon. So my year-old iPhone 4S, I couldn't SIM card swap with the uh, Verizon. Yeah. So it only works so long as your year-ago phone is on the same carrier. And uh, same SIM setup, because well, it wasn't Yeah, like 4S, exactly, the- right. Right, so like for us, Verizon phones were were not well. They were world phones, but they you couldn't. I don't remember. Yeah, it was funny, and it, and every couple of years they they cut the SIM card size down too. Yeah, because it was mini, and now it's micro. Right, like whatever. maybe with the iPhone six, they're going to come, you know, and make an even smaller SIM card. I don't know. Yeah, now it's just a it's a you get an eyedropper and you just drop it in there. So. Yeah. One thing though, this is the thing I've been meaning to talk about is this was the first year. So I've tried to do this, uh, you know, run run the beta on my year old iPhone as much as I can over the summer. Uh, and even like last year when I couldn't SIM card swap, I would at least carry the iPhone 4S around in the house on Wi-Fi. as you know, the only thing I couldn't do is get phone calls, but I don't, like I said, I don't get many phone calls, but everything else I'd get. This is the first year where I don't find going back to the iPhone five to be slow, physically slow. Like the interface really? feels slow. I notice it in some places, but like the keyboard doesn't feel slow. Like it always, that's the one thing every single year when I test the new beta of, of the operating system on my year old iPhone, I think, man, how did I ever type on this thing? The keyboard is too slow (laughs) and it's never been, I don't know if it's because there were, you know, the, the operating system slowed down. I don't know if it's just that I got used to the increased or decreased latency of the interface responsiveness. But this is the one year where for the most part day to day, I don't feel that much difference between the five S and five just in terms of navigating around the operating system. Well, this is with you running iOS 8 on an, on the older phone? Yeah. I would. You typically, you, you're saying you typically run the new OS on the older phone? Yes. I'm thinking that it has more to do with the, the newness of the OS than the age of the phone in terms of your keyboard latency. I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm thinking maybe that. Maybe it's that iOS 8, because they didn't do anything new interface-wise radically, that it's nothing, nothing but improved performance-wise. As opposed to like last year, obviously a lot of people had complaints that iOS seven was dog slow on older hardware. Yeah, um, there's nothing. No, I don't think there's any reason to worry about that from iOS seven to iOS eight. And I think it combines with the fact that maybe the iPhone five was the first one where the A six was sort of good enough. You know that it's you know at least for things like typing that we don't need. You know. The speed improvements, I'm sure, help in image processing, for example, right? Like like when you take uh, 10 snapshots in a row using the press and hold thing. There's obviously a lot of computation that's involved there. The faster A7 really helps. But for just showing a touchscreen keyboard and typing, the A5, I, I think, is where where it hit the fast enough mark. Because I'm I'm doing it the other way around, where I've got iOS eight on my 5s, and I've got iOS seven running on. A, well, I don't keep these devices around, so at WWDC you had brought Amy's old uh, 4s for me, and having a two year gap between those phones, I'm running iOS seven on the older phone and iOS eight on the newer phone, 
and I noticed keyboard issues on my 5S. Oh, the 5S Whereas, running eight? Yeah, yeah. I like the keyboard feels a little sticky to me. Huh. That's interesting. That's why I'm thinking it might have more to do with the OS and the newness of that than it does with the hardware. I mean, I could be wrong. I don't it know. Could just be my setup. Interesting. Uh, I will say this too. I don't know if I mentioned this before on the show, but I uh, a lot of the little things in iOS eight are addictive, like the reply to an iMessage from anywhere. Yeah, yeah, is really really nice. It's tough because the uh, that makes it hard to go back. Like I feel like as lo- like when the next beta comes out, I'll probably just install it on my day phone too. It's it's funny. It's it's funny because the uh, normally year to year the upgrade you it's tough to go back because there's like some big new feature or there's something that you really like. Day to day using iOS eight, other than the uh, the the typing suggestion thing. I don't really notice. Like it just, it looks and feels like a slightly buggier iOS seven. Yeah. But it's got those nice, the, the notification thing for replying is really, really nice. I don't think I've used it that much. Oh man. Once you start, it's, it's, it really gets, it just feels crazy to go back to not being able to do it. I do like getting text messages in, in multiple devices. Like I've noticed uh, when people text rather than like people who don't have iPhones, it shows up on my iPad now, and it kind of freaked me out. Oh, see, I don't think I've noticed that yet because I get so few text messages from that aren't blue. Hmm. Yeah, it was uh, one. One. Uh, one came yesterday, and I'm I'm looking at my iPad, and I see the name in there, and I was like, "Wait, what? That person has an Android phone. How is this even possible?" Oh, and it, wait, and it shows up on your iPad. Well, then maybe maybe some of those continuity features do work iPhone to iPad, right? Because I think on the demo during the keynote, they showed it showing up on your Mac, right? They didn't and show I, it. The assumption up on your was iPad. that, yeah, yeah, I expected it to show up on my Mac. Uh, I never would have expected it on my. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I guess. But so. it was a surprise. I wonder if that's. It's got to be that they they're like on the same Wi-Fi network, or maybe. or maybe even Bluetooth. It's, it's still confusing to me, and I know that I've listened to a few other podcasts. Nobody's nobody's quite sure which of these features are running over Bluetooth and which are running over Wi-Fi, and which are maybe using both depending on their availability. seems like a lot of this stuff, though, rep- depends upon the Bluetooth LT, low, low, low energy Bluetooth LE. And the cutoff on Macs for that is pretty recent. So there's going to be a lot of people with semi-recent Macs, like two-year-old Macs, two-and-a-half-year-old Macs, who, when they upgrade to Yosemite, are going to be bitching because they don't get these features. I think, uh, I mean, if it were me, I would make it to where it ran over Bluetooth unless Bluetooth wasn't available and then it ran over Wi-Fi because a lot of people turn Bluetooth off on their phone to save battery. Right. Yeah, I feel like that trick is going to start. It, it. It's getting to the point where enough of the features depend upon it that, you know, I think most of I I because I usually keep Bluetooth off too for the same reason, but I feel like it's going to get harder and harder to, to do that. Or you're going to keep running into, oh, why isn't this working? Oh, duh, I turned Bluetooth off. Yeah, and I think enough people are still doing it, though, that it's going to be uh, Apple wouldn't want to get those support calls. And if you could just f- fall back to Wi-Fi, why not do it? I found out my son runs his uh, all of his iOS devices at maximum brightness all the time. <laughs> do you need to maybe send him to Warby Parker? Uh, he knows that it's running... Uh, that it's running the battery down. And in fact, every day his iPhone and iPad both completely run out of battery. And I said, Hey, why look, you've got brightness all the way up. And he goes, well, I'm not, he didn't say compromise, but he said, I'm not going to, it's 
he thinks it's gross to run the display at less than full brightness. He'd rather have the device be dead than have it not at uh, maximum uh, beauty, which I kind of <laughs> yeah. respect. I, I I respect his. Uh, I don't know. He's got a philosophy there, and he's sticking to it. Yeah, I, I'm that way with my Mac. My Mac is always at full brightness. In fact, that auto brightness thing, I never turned it off. I really should. But if I'm in a like when when I work out of the the office, if I pass in front of a window or at a certain time of day, my screen starts to dim, and it just drives me nuts. I want it always as bright as it can possibly be, unless I'm on a plane. Yeah, exactly. Like a, the airplane mode for Mac should it involve cutting your display brightness down. Well, you know that that brings up something we didn't see in Yosemite, and I expect to at some point because you know there's all this talk about um, will we ever get like WiMAX or some kind of LTE chip or something in a Mac. And the, the only, like, like, technically that wouldn't be that hard to do. It's just that software isn't really written for that. And you're going to run through your data pretty quickly. Yeah, that's, it, it seems like we used to, who knows, maybe someday this year they'll come out with that. Um, well, they already kind of have it. Like you, your Mac can, can talk to your, uh, your access point and find out that it's, an access point running over a data connection rather than running through like a you know a regular wired connection. Like that's a thing that they can that the like if you've got like one of those Karma devices or something, it it can report back to your computer that it's it's like a you know a, a data network device. Hmm. Well, and there is the new feature in Yosemite and iOS eight where once you've paired your phone with if your phone has hotspot capability. Right. You can turn it on entirely from your Mac without interacting with your phone. Right. So it seems like there would have to be some APIs in place or something to, uh, I don't know, so apps can know when they're in that mode versus a different mode. So that like things like uh, automatic downloading for certain apps gets turned off. Right. I remember, I always remember it was Marco who, uh, who at WWDC a couple years ago was tethering instead of paying for hotel Wi-Fi. <laughs> and it it was like, you know, he got there on Sunday. Monday was the keynote. And then uh, the new episode of Mad Men hit iTunes. <laughs> and, oh. and he ran through like, <laughs> he ran through like four gigabytes of LTE and got his like AT&T account closed for the month because it downloaded <laughs> an episode of Mad Men. That's fantastic. Right. But that's exactly the sort of thing you don't want to do. And I don't know how you, you know, I do think that that's basically why Apple hasn't done it is that, that you know, and I know, I guess that there's opt in things that apps could do to say, hey, what kind of network am I on before I do this? But I feel like there's too much software that's already written that just says, do I have a network connection? If so, download this giant multi gigabyte thing. Right. And I mean, we live in a world now where there's a pretty good chance that your data connection is coming through the air. Like even if you're on Wi-Fi, right. there's a good chance that the thing on the other end of that Wi-Fi is talking to Sprint or talking to Verizon or whomever. Yeah, I think that the new feature. I think that I I think they're probably well. I wouldn't say never, but my guess is they're never going to. They're not going to do LTE equipped MacBooks, and that this new feature where you can turn on tethering from your iPhone right from the menu in, in, uh, on your Mac is as close as they're going to get. And that's pretty, that's close enough, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think that's good? Do you think that's, or would you rather have a Mac that had a data connection? 
Yeah, because you'd have to pay an extra 15 bucks a month at the minimum, yeah. depending on, you know, like Verizon. I think it's like every time you add a device, you, you have, we have like one shared family pool of data, but every time you add a device, you still have to add 10 bucks a month. So rather than add another 10 bucks a month, just, just let me use the phone because it's going to be the same connection anyway. Yeah, but with your phone, your, your Mac has a great big battery in it. Yeah, I, you know. But if you're on your Mac and have your phone, you can, I don't know. No, you, yeah, you can just charge off that. That's yeah. true. I suppose it all works out. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's as close as they're going to get. It's, it's probably as close as they're going to get, and it's probably, in, in the real world, all I would ever need. Yeah. There's something nice about having all of this stuff on your Mac, like everything that, that you could have on your Mac, so it's its own thing. But the truth is, my phone's always in my pocket anyway. Yeah. All right, let me take a break and thank our third and final sponsor, our good friends at Backblaze. You guys know Backblaze. Uh, online, unlimited backup for your Mac. They have over 100 petabytes, I don't even know how much that is, of data backed up for all of their users across the whole system. It's amazing. Um, anyone can back up your data. You can back up your data you know, with hard drives on your desk. You can uh, send it. To, there's all sorts of other online services. Here's the thing that they've done. They can prove, they can show you, they have a record, a track record, not just of backing up your data, but getting it back to you, like when you need it. They've crossed the mark. They have over 6 billion files that users of Backblaze have restored from Backblaze. Not just that they've you know backed up 6 billion, 6 billion backed up files that they've gotten restored because they needed it, because a drive went bad, a file went corrupt, something like that. Uh, you can access all of your data from anywhere, from any of your devices. They have an iPad app that lets you access and share any of your files. You can restore one file at a time or all of your files easily with their web restore. 25% uh, of all the restores that Backblaze users do are just one file, right? It's, it's so super targeted when you need it, when you need that one file that you know I have backed up. Uh, it's not just for computer disasters. It's for any time when you're out and away from your computer and you need a file, oh, I know I have it on my Mac back at home, but all I've got with me is my iPhone. Just fire up the app. You can get to any file on your system. Uh, founded by ex-Apple engineers, Backblaze runs natively on your Mac and on Mavericks. There's no add-ons, no gimmicks, no extra charges, no upsells. Just simple. Five bucks a month per computer for unlimited, unthrottled backup. Five bucks a month. Best five bucks a month you can spend. Get a no-risk, no-credit-card-required trial, 30-day trial, no credit card. Just try it. And at the end of the 30 days, I guarantee you, you're going to sign up. Go to backblaze.com slash daringfireball. Backblaze.com slash daringfireball. I can't, I, I can't believe there's enough people out there who listen to the show who haven't signed up for it that they still keep sponsor the show. I just opened up the page. I have not. And every time you you do the sponsor read for them, I'm always thinking, I really need to do this. It's so, you know, this time I got, I got it open. It's the it's easiest, best thing in the world. Yeah. You know, Marco had a thing the, the other week. I don't know if you listened to ATP, but Marco had a thing where the drive in his uh, Mac Pro went bad, like real bad, like yeah. in a dangerous way where he couldn't boot the machine. And then when he booted from the emergency partition and ran disk utility, it told him there was nothing wrong with his drive. It said there's nothing wrong with the drive, but he couldn't log, log into it. And it, long story short, he solved it another way. 
I think he used super duper and had like a super duper clone and did it. But like he even said on the show, one of the things, and this is to me is the, the, the key. It's that peace of mind thing where he, in the back of his mind, he knew if, if diddling around with what he had on his desk with backups and super, you know, super duper clones and, and stuff like that didn't work. The worst case scenario is he still had everything in back place. It's like that, that, that peace of mind is to me, uh, the key to backblaze versus any other thing that you could do like time machine and super duper clones, which are great too. It's that peace of mind though, of knowing that you've got this other thing off site in the cloud. Really? like. Yeah. It's, I've got the page open as soon as we're done recording, I'm going to sign up for this because I had a, when I was doing my whole Yosemite second partition thing, I had some, some, uh, some very close calls with my own data and you know, everything that's really important I've got on Dropbox. So I, I wouldn't be totally screwed but it would take me a good day or two to like try to get my system back to the way it was. And then it's never going to quite feel right. Yeah. And to just have all my, my stuff out there in one place backed up, uh, I just need to do it. I'm, I'm stupid for not having done it already. You are. <laughs> uh, so Google Material Design. This is the new design language that, that Google announced last week at I.O. Uh, I don't think, I think to summarize it, to me, I'm not a daily Android user. I mean, I try to stay up to date. Um, it's not as radical, like going from the previous look to this new one is not as big a leap as iOS 6 to iOS 7. Uh, it's to me a little bit more like Yosemite. You know, it's like their equivalent of Yosemite. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's just a sort of cleaning up and modernization and getting rid of some wonkiness. Um, but I think it looks bad. It's the first time to me that Android looks like from top to bottom that there's one cohesive set of visual guidelines for how stuff should look. I think even more than the visual update, which you're right, it's not a, it's not a huge leap, but what does feel like a big leap is the way they're documenting and talking about the design. Yeah, the design side. But it's weird. Like it, it, It's like at first I was very complimentary to it, and I still am, judging it mainly on what it is they're recommending that developers do which I think is all right and good. And it's not just, hey, add animation to your user interface. It's add animation in a way that, that increases understanding of what's going on. So if you open something, it doesn't just appear on screen. It opens from somewhere, like from the button that you tapped to open it. And then when you close it, it goes back down into the thing. Yeah, I was looking at the the docs before we, we jumped on to do the show. I just, you know, I just wanted to get my ducks in a row here. And I noticed comparing the, uh, the Android design stuff about animation versus what is in the iOS seven HIG, looking at them side by side in iOS seven, it says things that I, I'm not going to read it verbatim, but it's more or less saying, here's why you should use animations and here's the, the scenarios and here's, you want to be reserved and you want the animations to feel a certain way. And the Google site is okay. So here's the code to do an animation. <laughs> And uh, here's the direction things could go. And uh, maybe there's some like footnotes here and there about why you would do a thing the way you do it. But it's still very, still very Google. Yeah, but some of it to me is not very Google. It's very Matthias Duarte in particular. Like he, I don't know him. I've never met him, but he's he seems a bit. Uh, he's always struck me in his onstage demeanor as being a bit twee. <laughs> okay. Um, Here's here's a uh, phrase a lot of people have called this out. It's very early on when you go to google.com slash design and start reading up on it. It's somewhere on the first couple of pages, and it says, material is the metaphor. Um, now, this is I'm reading. 
A material metaphor is the unifying theory of a rationalized space and a system of motion. Our material is grounded in tactile reality inspired by our study of paper and ink, yet open to imagination and magic. Now, what, what does that mean? That's a lot of... Um... What does it mean? It means nothing, right? That is... It, it, and in fact... It, it, Sounds like Don Draper wrote that. It's actually no, because it, Don Draper. If Don Draper wrote it, it would it would at least make you think of something real. <laughs> like I think that, not just flowery, right? I feel like Don Draper would go nuts at that. I feel like it's the opposite. It's it. And in fact, I think it's actually misleading. Where the only thing you come out of that is something, something study of paper and ink, but it's not. It, the rules of their new interface are not grounded in the realities of paper and ink. Right? There's no skeuomorphic ink bleed or paper texture. And, you know, things bounce and move in ways that paper and ink can't bounce and move. You know, that the, the you know, you, you can't have it both ways and say that you've based the metaphors on paper and ink and then increase the amount of animation and stretching that you can do. Right? It's actually false, it's actually misleading. Because paper doesn't move like liquid. Right. I think you're better off reading the Google material design docs, not reading the actual English and just looking at it. Pretend, you know, just like, like Laura Mipsum, all of the descriptions <laughs> and just go through and look at it visually. And it, it, to me, when I did that, it makes way more sense than if you try to read it and understand what this shit about a rationalized space and a system of motion. It's, it's very hand wavy. It's like somebody somebody exactly. thought way too hard about this. Yeah, they want to make it seem like more than it is. Even uh, during the keynote, I forget the line, but the uh, he said uh, the, the ink, the the ink. Oh god, I don't forget what they call it. The, but the the ink thing moves like water, and it, like right there, it's well, pick a metaphor. Is it ink or is it water? Choose one word. Yeah. You're already confusing things for me. I do think, too, and I think it's interesting. It would be interesting to see how quickly Android developers pick up on, on these guidelines. Because to me, every time I've tried Android, it's, it, the, the Google stuff is okay. It doesn't make me happy, and it doesn't feel good, but it's okay. But then as soon as you get into third-party apps, it's just brutal. Just brutal in terms of aesthetics and layout. Um, and part of this is the advantage that a lot of this stuff doesn't come from the operating system, really. It's this Google Play services thing that you get from the uh, the Google Play Store. And it's like this shared library so that you developers don't have to wait till everybody's running the new Android L you know, version. I don't know if they're going to call it 5.0 or whatever, which is going to be years. But... A, a, a big chunk of existing Android phones that won't get the upgrade to the full new OS will get the new Google Play services, which is the shared library. And I think that I think this interface stuff will all be distributed through there. So it's interesting. I, I can't wait to see because, like with with the iOS, all the major developers, every app that I, I can't remember how long it took till every app I use on a daily basis was updated for iOS seven, but it didn't take long. There's like one or two holdouts unlike my first two home screens. Mm. Uh, I don't know that Android has developers who care about stuff like that. Well, it seems like what they're trying to do, looking at the google.com slash design, this is pretty well put together. 
they're trying really hard to make it look like they care about design. And that sounds uh, dismissive, but what I mean is they, they, they're really trying to get across the importance of design to developers. Like to maybe they've, they've recognized that that lack of consistency, there's like even fragmentation within the design of, of third party apps. And maybe if they can bump up quality or maybe if they can set an example, they can bump up quality across the board. It's interesting to me that Apple's approach to this is they create thoughtful designs that people want to emulate. And then they go and document those designs and people will try to achieve that themselves. Whereas Google will write documentation and make APIs. Yeah, I did. I noticed that too, that I, and I watched that whole interminable keynote. Um, (laughs) They didn't show as many apps as anywhere near as many apps as Apple did when they showed iOS seven. And, and, you know, I think it speaks to the way Apple works where a Apple, Apple did redesign every single part of iOS, you know, all the apps, mail and calendar and, you know, everything. Um, and it's the way, you know, let's face it, you know, you can admit it. You you've, you've even said you've read the Hig, but let's face it. You you design stuff mostly by you look at what Apple's done, you digest it and internalize, okay, here's the way it's supposed to be. And then you kind of shoot from the hip. You go from your gut and you know right. it, you know. You don't sit there with the Hig open and, you know, okay, it says 16 points between these two things, so I'll make these two 16 points. I mean, so at some point you go and you, you know, make sure you've got everything like that right. But at the, when you've got Photoshop open, you're, you're creating art, not a description. Right. And the, the, I, I say this all the time, but the G in HIG is guidelines. Right. And I think of the HIG more as like the, uh, uh, the instructions that come with a new device or your toaster or something. Like you, you might, like you're going to look through it and you're going to get the, the basics and you might refer to it later, but it's not, you don't leave it sitting next to your toaster so that every time you make a toast, you read it. Same thing with like Strunk and White or any other writing guidelines for writers. A, a writer doesn't sit there with, you know, the Chicago manual of style open and for each sentence, look it up. How am I supposed to structure the sentence? The writer just writes. And then every once in a while, you run into a sticky situation or your editor will say, or somebody who's read it will point to a sentence and say, well, isn't this ambiguous here? You know, and then you think, Ooh, I do need to look at the guidelines. You know, let me, let me see. But while you're actually writing, you're in a completely different mode. You're not referring to a set of rules. You've already internalized them. Right. And either you have that, that structure, that framework in your head, or you don't. Right. And it did seem like Google, and I think, you know, I think part of it is just the way Google is different than Apple. And I think part of it too, though, is that they're aware that their developer base is different. You know? Well, I think your point there about uh, internalizing it, you're, you're right. And that, I think, is what's telling here is that uh, Google is, is setting this up to where, I mean, if you're, if you're not a good designer, then no amount of documentation is going to make you a good designer. Right. And it's. I, I think if if I have some kind of objection or if I have an, a strong opinion about the way Google's doing things here, it's that they're sort of presenting it as if like, okay, just read this and now you'll be good at it. Yeah, and I think that that's they're probably wrong on that part. I think, but you know, obviously, I think you and I, uh, I'll even use the word biased. We're, we're biased yeah. in that regard. But I do that's think we, we we as a whole collectively have talked a lot over the years about how iOS, the average iOS user, is different from the average Android user. And that's one of the reasons why raw market share comparisons are, are less valid than in many other contexts, because they're not, if, if the users have different um, 
expectations, different reasons for buying the device, if they spend different amounts of money, if they have different amounts of education, if they have different income levels, if they live in different places, if they tend, you know, tend to live in different countries, it makes a big difference on the value of them collectively as, you know, can you build a business just addressing these developers? Uh, I think less spoken about, but maybe even just as important, is that I think there's very clearly a demographic difference between Android developers and iOS developers in the same way that there was always a difference between Windows developers and Mac developers. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think it's a, a very similar difference. You know, and that there'll be some companies will design, you know, have the same teams and have designers who do, let's make an app that looks as similar as we can on iOS and Android. Uh, and there's develop, you know, developers and designers who are working on both. And I'm sure, I know I've read blog posts from some of them, there are designers, you know, talented designers who are either fans of Android or just the nature of their job is that's where they're working. Uh, I'm not trying to make the, you know, I'm not jumping to any kind of extreme conclusion that there's no good designers working on Android. But I think, I feel very confident saying that most good mobile UI designers are either iOS only or iOS first. Right. I think that's a, some of that is that there's the moving target problem with Android where uh, which device, which set of, of APIs are you designing for? Yeah. Which version of the OS are you designing for? Are you designing for a hardware keyboard or are you designing for a software keyboard? Is there like a jog dial thing on the side that you use to, to navigate or is it all touchscreen? And for it's it's all it's evened out a little bit. It's evened out a lot because I, Android, especially at the phone level, has unified. They've gotten rid of all those things. Like all those things that used to be claimed to be a, a strength of the platform that some of the devices, you know, if you want a hardware keyboard, you can have a hardware keyboard. If you want a jog dial, you can have a jog dial. Well, none of the phones have those things anymore. They're just, which is, and that that's good for everybody, but it, it means that there's, there's still, um, there's still some moving target stuff for, for Android hardware where, uh, a designer for Apple platform, you kind of like, you know, the screen size and you know, the resolution and you know how, how big a thing needs to be and how you hold it and where your thumb ends up. And and that plus the fact that most users, I'm, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but uh, by and large, paid software on Android does not sell as well as on iOS. Yeah, I'm not going to get in trouble for that. I think everybody agrees well, I, with that. I was that was the more political version of what I wanted to say. But it's uh, who nobody is going to spend a ton of time designing software. Nobody's going to spend the money to to pay a great designer to make software that nobody's going to buy. Yeah, I can see that. It does make me wonder for so for uh, for apps that are always going to be free, like a you know like a, a major uh, an MLB app that is. I mean, you pay for it, but it's like it's so mass market that it it doesn't matter. There's no inherent iOS versus Android bias there necessarily. Or for something that is like maybe the Major League Soccer app, where you just if you're a fan, you're going to download it and it's free, and it's the app exists to help get you excited about a different thing. Like they they make their money elsewhere. You look at like a Twitter app or a Facebook app. It surprises me that there's those companies aren't spending more on Android design. Yeah, uh, me too. I don't know why. Here's a, a thing that I'm wondering about. So I've noticed, and I think that the new Google Material Design is largely in line with it. Is uh, like when you look at the Google Maps app for iOS. You have the Google Maps app. Yeah, yeah. That's the that's my daily use Maps app. Uh, it looks 
you know, it's it wasn't designed that Google Maps iOS app was not designed in isolation from this material design. It's not exactly the same, but it's you know, it. it the big difference is Apple has, you know, and we it, it comes down to like what we talked about an hour ago about how Yosemite and iOS seven look related, but they don't look like the same thing. Whereas Material Design, they're they're flat out saying it's meant to look the same on a Chromebook and on a tablet and on a phone, uh, and I think implicitly because some of the screenshots they've shown showed apps with an iOS status bar, not an Android status bar, and that mm-hmm. I think that they're they're presenting this as a design language that you could use for iOS apps too. And I think that they themselves have sort of been doing that, that their apps to me have always, you know, started looking a little bit more like moon man, iOS apps. That's going to be a little tricky because they would have to give out some kind of, I don't know, framework or SDK to make those APIs work on iPhone. Well, I don't know if they're, I don't know if they're going to mean for third party developers to do that, or if it's just something they're doing themselves internally. But don't you think like, when I look at maps, like they've got like a back button that uses an arrow instead of a Chevron and it doesn't, it doesn't slide from the side. iOS 7 style. Apple's relationship with Google right now is such that I write that a lot of that off as just Google saying, screw you. Google's like, we're just going to do our own thing. We don't care if it looks like an iPhone app. But it doesn't, you know, it's close enough. They're related enough. It's not like Windows Phone, which Windows Phone is a very different metaphor. Right. Right? It would really stick out. Whereas this is two takes on the same basic idea. Yeah. And I think, I mean, like I said, Google Maps is my daily use Maps app. And I don't find myself thinking, I don't hate it. I don't feel grossed out by its... Googleness, but it doesn't look like an iOS seven app, right? And I wonder, like, I feel like they're going that route with like Gmail and stuff too, because that's the other app. That's the one app they did show off in the keynote, and I have to say, the new Gmail app looks so much better than um, than it used to look. Yeah, I haven't seen it. Yeah, but I, you know, it's, I, I don't understand the people who use the the Gmail web interface or the, the like. I just use the stock mail app. Yeah. Well, the new Gmail app looks a lot more. It used to like on Android. It looked like a web app, and just even though it was a native app, it just looked just just the spacing, the typography was just horrible. Yeah. <laughs> really, really bad. Uh, last thing I wanted to talk about, and this is from IO, is is that in broad terms, and I, I guess I want to write about it on Daring Fireball too. This is the thing I've been thinking about ever since. Is that there's all sorts of details. If we and I love to examine the details. You know, we spend you know we could spend the whole show just talking about the difference between Helvetica and Roboto fonts. <laughs> um, but if you zoom out, take the ten thousand foot perspective, it's kind of remarkable, and I think unremarked upon, just how similarly targeted Google and Apple's initiatives are. Right, a tech company talking about uh, you know set-top devices that run the mobile OS and have an app store and wearables and watchables and health tracking and heart rate rate monitors and footstep monitors and an API for apps to track those things. Um, you know, and I know that the Apple wrist wearable is still a rumor, not a thing, but I mean, it's, it's one of those rumors that has an awful lot of smoke and everybody's talking about it. And people have been talking about an improved Apple TV with an app store for years. Um, the health and fitness tracking Apple announced the you know the health APIs, home automation. They're both talking about that. Google bought Nest. Apple you know 
flat out came out with iOS 8 and said, you know, here we're adding these things and we're working with all these companies so that your garage door opener and, you know, your thermostats and whatever can all be hooked up. Notably, Nest was not on that list. Right, very noticeably. Um, it's all the same sort of basic ideas, right? Uh, car integration, there's another obvious one. Yeah. And you can say that all this stuff is obvious, but they're both, all those things are on both companies' agendas. How much of that do you think is me too? How much of it do you think is that's just where, like even in a vacuum, both companies would have ended up here? I don't know. I find it remarkable. To me, it's very remarkable that they're all, all of those things I just mentioned are all on, are both on both companies' agendas. I mean, because I think, I, I think I know enough to say, I don't know enough to say that Apple is coming out with a wearable device that you wear on your wrist. But I do know enough. I can say with certainty that they have investigated it thoroughly, and that if they don't, it's because they rejected it. That they, you know, that they had people who I know were working on a wearable for your wrist, so they at least looked at it. Uh, all of those things, right? Watches, or call, I call them wrist wearables because I'm not convinced that that they're the ones that are going to be successful are going to be watch-like. But let's say something you wear on your wrist, health, fitness, tracking, home automation, car integration, TV set-tops, it's all the same things. I just find that remarkable that both companies have their sights set on all those things. Oh, I mean, what else even is there? What else could they get into? Yeah, I don't know if it's, if it's just that they're all such obvious ideas for expansion or... I almost see it as a, a byproduct of the relationship between Apple and Google now, where they're so, like, I, for a long time, you'd say that they were friends, and, and I think we might be moving either in the middle of or right at the end of frenemies territory, and it's about to get ugly. Yeah, I would say we're past that. I think they're in arch rival territory. I really oh, you think do. It's, yeah. You think it's already there? Yeah, I do. I think it's been there ever since the, the, I think it's been there for years, ever since the Steve Jobs internal Apple thing that don't be evil is bullshit. You know, I, I think mm -hmm. it's been that way since then. Well, I mean, outwardly, like the way they behave to each other in public, because even, even after that, it was still, the Maps app was powered by Google. Yeah, but only because it had to be. And they switched, yeah. you know, they switched before, probably a year before they were ready, but had to do it anyway because they couldn't get an extra year. You know, it was very contentious. You know, I know. I don't know. I still don't know exactly. I'd love to know in hindsight how much of it was. Um, and I know Forstall took the blame for that for the you know the 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 seriously lacking quality of it and as it debuted. And I think that the gist. I don't know this for a fact. I think this this is all third hand. But the gist is that 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 the the Maps team led the rest of Apple to think, no, it's not going to be as good as Google Maps. There's going to be problems. We're going to take a hit on this. But that here's where we are. You know, if the bar, if 100% is as good as Google Maps, we're at 75. And, that, you know, given all the other considerations, you know, that's why we should go ahead and do it now because we're only going to get from 75 to 100 once we have real world usage data and can improve it. But then when it shipped, it was like at 40 on a scale of one to a hundred and that there was less than what the internal team had promised, even if what they had promised was not as good as Google maps. Like nobody in Apple, nobody thought, Oh, we, we're going to make this transition and it's going to be just as good. I mean, everybody knew you could just look at certain maps and see it didn't have as much detail. And not even that, but uh, transit transit directions. Yeah. Well, ex yeah, exactly. Which, you know, they're only adding now, right? Isn't that, isn't that in iOS eight or am I misremembering? 
if if it is, I missed it. Well, but obviously they knew that they were losing out on transit directions. Which, by the way, is the reason that I switched to using Google Maps as my my maps. Yeah, that's living huge. In, living in New York, I need I need to know which train to take. Yeah, it's absolutely. You know, if you live in an area where you depend on public transportation, it's you know, it's like night or day. Right? It's like having a weather app that doesn't even show your location. <laughs> well, it is. It's true. You know, like I think like when Dark Sky shipped, it was like I think they only had like a U.S. Da- data source. So I know there have been some weather apps that only have U.S. weather. Well, then you know, doesn't matter how cool the app is if you live in Europe, it's you know worthless. Um, you know, if if you take the subway to get to get places in New York City, Apple Maps isn't going to help you at all. Um, but I'm curious whether if it, you know, and I think it was a problem for Forstall and, and uh, you know, in terms of uh, uh, accountability, that it wasn't as good as it was supposed to have been, and as they were led to have been. But I don't know that they still wouldn't have switched at the same time anyway. It's just that maybe they would have positioned it different marketing wise to set the expectations lower because they were in such a tight spot in terms of Google demanding really deep access to users, personal location data in exchange for the things that Apple really needed from Google, which were vector based maps instead of bitmap maps and drive driving directions. You know, and the thing that you really need for a good maps database is data. And they, they even said, like, the more you use it, the better the service is going to get. Right. And so I think maybe in, in a, a, a perfect or semi-perfect world, they would have maybe – because, like, what else did they have that wound up being way better after more people used it because of data? Siri. Yeah. Uh, so maybe they, they would have, like, launched this alongside the Maps app as, like, the uh, like new Maps beta. I don't know how they could have done it if their relationship was better. But at, given the state of their relationships, I actually think even knowing how bad the initial version of Maps was going to be, that they did the right thing. I think the wrong thing was that they didn't present, they didn't lower expectations. And they could have even been more forthright about the fact that it was contentious. You know, that, you know, you know I don't know. There's some way that they could have presented it that would have lowered expectations accordingly. And yeah, it's a it's tough to sell it that way. Though. Yeah, but it's better than what they d- went through, though. I mean, you can say yeah, that's tough to sell, but it's a lot tougher to say, "Wow, new maps is going to be awesome," and then you got the maps and your house wasn't listed. <laughs> I just mean that uh, it's it's. I'm trying to imagine Apple getting up and like, what do they say? How do they point out how contentious the relationship was? Well, maybe that maybe that they couldn't get into, but somehow they could have said, "Look, we're you know we're sh- switching to this, and it's going to protect." You know, they could emphasize the protection of privacy, which is true. It's absolutely you know, there's no spin involved there. You could say it's spin by emphasizing the the privacy protection, um, because that was the bottom line: is that Google was demanding access to user identifiable personal location data in exchange for all of the things that Apple needed to improve maps using Google maps. And there was, you know, that there was no going forward from that. And they had to announce the switch, you know, they couldn't announce the switch mid year. They had to, you know, the contract was up. They, I think to renew it, you know, Google might've asked for more than one year. It was either do it now when the contract's up or, you know, go through the the pain of having all this, you know, succumb to Google's demands for user data, which they weren't going to do. You know, it's it's an interesting point, the contentiousness of the relationship, because people like you and me knew that. But that's not everyone who uses an iPhone. No, right. And Apple knows that and doesn't expect for Apple's internal negotiation problems to be, you know, that's Apple's. Apple knows that that's their problem, not the user's problem. But, 
you know, that's an instance where it, it effectively became the user's problem. It's an interesting thought experiment, though, to go back and think about, you know, just yesterday, it was the seven-year anniversary of when the first iPhone shipped. And think, you know, I don't know why everybody was making, a, I mean, I even posted a few photos comparing the two, but, you know, why is seven a big deal? I don't, I'm not quite sure, but, uh, you know, June 29th is, is like iPhone day. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting to go back to seven years ago and think about how, you know, the Google was a partner in the iPhone, right? And Eric Schmidt was called on stage in the keynote where it was introduced and it was all hugs and smiles. He was a board member at Apple and there was this whole, look, we'll make the awesome device and Google will provide the awesome, you know, um, cloud services like Maps and YouTube. Uh, it's interesting to think where we'd be today if that relationship had stayed like that and Google hadn't gone into Android and built their own competitor to the iPhone and was the you know there was more of a happy relationship there. I don't think it would have lasted anyway because I think even without Android, Google would have demanded the same. It wouldn't have changed Google's thirst for privacy invasive collection mm -hmm. of user data. Uh, you could argue that it's a good thing, even. I, I mean, it, it may be annoying for Apple that Google did what they did with Android, but at the same time, that relationship has evolved to where the, I mean, the rivalry of that relationship is such that we're going to win out in a big way. If both companies are making uh, all of these different kinds of things at the same time, that means we as consumers get a choice. And we're, we've got two very powerful companies with a lot of technology behind them fighting out who can make the better thing. Yeah, I don't know. I th kind of feel like Google's business model existed in Apple's blind spot at the time. That it just never... Like Microsoft, Apple understood, right? They're going to make a competing platform and they're going to sell it for $15 a pop to OEMs. You know, they understood that. They didn't use the same business model. But I think that they saw like their potential competitors for the iPhone as being companies like RIM you know, making their own, doing the, you know, the same thing as Apple, making the whole widget, the OS, the services, the, the devices, and something like Microsoft, where somebody would sell a commercial system to OEMs for a profit. I think the whole idea of we're just going to give it away for free and sell things at cost and make it up by collecting user data and using that data to sell advertising, it, I think it existed in a blind spot for Apple. So you think that just they they wouldn't have expected Google to make this kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't think that I don't think that that Apple in 2007 when they agreed, hey, and you know, because it, it you know the stories that have come out since are that the Maps app was a, a relative late addition, but it was like, hey, what if we did this? What if we had Maps and we have GPS and we can triangulate location with cell you know towers. And we could get a really cool, what if we work with Google and get a really cool version of Maps? And it was cool, right? It was a really, you know, that was uh, uh, one of those things that made the iPhone not a phone. You know, it was like this new thing. You had a live updating maps in your hand. It was amazing. But, you know, I didn't know that it was a late edition, but that makes sense. And it shows that uh, because the first iPhone didn't have GPS. Yeah, yeah, it didn't have GPS. I think it, I think it was entirely cell phone triangulation and Wi-Fi, you know, yeah. the, the network of known Wi-Fi locations. Because um, I remember with the early one, too, if you... Um, if you had like a new Wi-Fi, like I had, I used to carry around a little airport express, like in my suitcase, I guess I still take it some places, but you know, that way I would hook up to the hotel, instead of using the hotel's Wi-Fi, I'd use the ethernet and use the hotel's ethernet and set up my right. own Wi-Fi. Uh, the iPhone had no idea where I was. 
until I like got off the Wi-Fi and got on the cellular. Um, uh-huh. I don't know. I don't know where where we would be. To think that that was a shipping thing. I mean, it, it, maybe that's the the thing about the seven years is looking back and, and thinking like, wh- how primitive was this thing? It, it was so advanced at the time, but from in only seven years, it's become, I don't know, almost a little folksy hmm. to think to think about an iPhone shipping without GPS. Yeah, or with a truly shitty camera. <laughs> uh, it's crazy. Um, it was like it, it shipped with like a really nice cell phone camera, and what I used to think of as cell phone camera quality. Uh, yeah, because like when I, to get, uh, I had to do this thing because yesterday I took photos, side by side photos with the five S and the original iPhone, and I had to figure out how to get the photos from the old iPhone to my new iPhone to post them to Twitter, and I didn't want to go through the Mac. I was just sitting there watching uh, soccer games and stuff. And I couldn't figure it out because I couldn't send text messages because I didn't have an SM, I didn't have a SIM card for the old iPhone. Um, it was running an old version of iOS that didn't have iMessage yet. And I was like, mm. how the hell do I do that? I, so, I, of course, the you know old reliable email. You can always email yourself something. Yeah. Um, and I went to email the photo and just emailed it to myself. But it didn't ask me, do you want to send small, medium, or large? It just sent it. And I was like, oh, that's weird. I don't remember that. And then it showed up on my new iPhone a couple seconds later. And the one was only like 109K. I was like, ah, it shrunk it. And then I realized, nope, that's how small the photos were. <laughs> that was, it didn't ask because the full-size photo was, was only like 200 kilobytes. It's tiny. Yeah, it was crazy. All right, last thing. I know we've gone long. This is long even by talk show standards. But to me, it, it's emblematic of the differences. Is, is the car stuff isn't shipping yet. Um, the home automation stuff isn't really shipping yet. I know that there's some new stuff with Nest. Uh, the one thing that's started to ship are the watches, right? And now they last <laughs> week at I.O., they shipped the first two Google Wear watches, and they had on-site. They didn't give them to people yet. The the prototypes of the Moto, or not prototypes, but like early production models of the Moto 360, which is the round one. Uh-huh. <laughs> It it doesn't even use the whole circle. Yeah, That's, at the bottom, you, you, the thing yeah. at the bottom. All right, <laughs> it's not actually round. There's actually, I thought it was a bug, and then I read <laughs> I read a thing. So if you look at the pictures of the Moto 360 at the very bottom of the front face, like at the six o'clock area, there's a small black bar, like it's almost like a bottom letterboxing of a few pixels at the bottom of the screen, and apparently that's. A feature, not a bug. It's where the display, they call them the display drivers are. I don't even know what that means, display drivers. But I guess it's, in other words, for some technical reason, they couldn't make the full display round. I'm going to call that a bug. (laughs) It just, it looks like somebody screwed up cropping an Instagram picture. Right. Well, who, who, when you settle on that, who says, well, good enough? It's it's it looks like a joke. It looks. Uh, Faith Corpy had tweeted that uh, it looks like something that would come out of a plastic egg. <laughs> to me, it everything about those watches emblemizes the difference between Google and Apple, and Google fans and Apple fans. You know, and I don't mean it like yeah. I, I don't want to. Fans may not be the, but people who tend to be drawn to Apple products versus people who tend to be drawn to Google products, and it—it's a sensibility. Yeah, and it just emphasizes how different we are. And in the fact, like for example, the reaction from people who like Google stuff 
and maybe they're you know like people who who still are optimistic at Google Glass is going to be a thing, or maybe they own a pair of Google Glass, um, and they attended I/O and they were there and they got to choose. They uh, they, they gave you either the Samsung or the LG rectangular watch, and they said later in the year we'll give you the we'll send you the Moto 360 one too, and they had the 360s there that you could play with in demo mode, but you couldn't like take it with you. Those people, and they say, I like it. I've got my Samsung gear live on. I like it. It's, it's nice. But I, you know, wow, the, the, Moto, the Moto 360 one is even nicer. I can't wait for it. Right? You were already, <laughs> they already admit that the one that, that shipping is so horrible that they already want the next one. It's the name. I keep laughing at the name. How do you call something a 360 when it doesn't form a full circle? <laughs> yeah, it should, I never even thought of that. It should be like the, the Moto 340. <laughs> or the I don't even know how many degrees that is, but it's probably like maybe it's like three hundred the moto three hundred <laughs> I think that it's such a perfect example of the Steve Jobs adage that you can't start with the technology and work your way back to the product. you have to start with the design and then find the technology to make it work that they've gone about this completely different, and in fact, they even said so on stage, like the words were it's now possible to make a full-powered computer that you can wear on your body. That the technology now exists to make a, you know, a little watch-sized or vaguely, you know, maybe even if it's a big-ass watch, but you can make a computer this size that you can wear on your wrist. Yeah, and Apple would never say that. And so here it is. Here we've made one. You know, as opposed to coming up with, here's something you would really want to do and, it, and uh, you would want to wear, and then we figured out the technology to make it work. It's like completely backwards. It's very different. I will eat my hat if Apple unveils something in the fall that even vaguely resembles these these watches. Define vaguely resembles. Well, that it's uh, – it, I actually have the thing right here. It's a Kickstarter project. I actually forget the name of it. It's, again, it's not printed on the watch band, but it was a, it's a watch band you could buy to put an iPad – the Square iPod Nano in. Oh yeah, um, was it the TikTok or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was it, and they sold them in Apple stores too. Yeah, and it was a Kickstarter project, and I bought it, and and for strapping an i little square iPod Nano onto your wrist, it was great, and it's a nice rubber band, and I've worn it for listening to music or podcasts while running with an iPod Nano. It's great. You put the iPod Nano on your wrist, and there you go. Um, way better than strapping a full size i phone on your arm with an armband because iPod Nano is very small. But these the Galaxy Gear things are exactly as graceful and elegant and good looking as <laughs> an iPod Nano strapped to a third party I think that was never designed to be a watch strapped to your wrist. Now technically there's obviously big improvements where the iPod Nano didn't have uh, any kind of internet access or live connection to your phone. It's an independent device and now they've got notifications and stuff like that. Um, so there's a, a big difference in terms of the actual wireless thing, but it just in terms of aesthetics, I just can't believe that that's what they've come up with, you know, and that the interface is no better than, um, flipping around a bunch of screens. In fact, the interface is worse because they don't have any kind of home screen on the watch. It's like, you've always got these cards that you flick and there's no sense of where I find it very confusing in terms of like spatial navigation. At least the iPod Nano has a home screen where you squeeze down and you've got a grid of apps like iOS. 
which is still kind of a weird iOSification of yeah. it just doesn't quite fit on a screen that small. Yeah. I do I like the the Moto 3 <laughs> I keep laughing at that name. It it as a as a tech demo or as a you know if it, if you saw it in a movie and the hero had one that actually did use the full circle, you'd think that was kind of cool. As like movie UI, that would look cool. In the real world with uh, the bar at the bottom when it's weirdly letterboxed like that, it just, it feels like a joke. It feels like this is a half-baked product and they're just trying to get it out the door so that they can uh, get interest up for the next one. It's more about an investment in a hope that that kind of works out. But the, I just don't see how battery's going to work out. I don't see how uh, the UI, like, I don't know, and maybe it's me just not thinking through it enough, but it just I've not seen one of these things with a good user experience that that would stand up. Yeah, I and I have a Pebble which it seems it's broadly similar. I mean, the, the Google Now stuff is a total difference, and but I don't give Google my personal information. I don't. I don't put my flight information into Google. Uh, it's always the demos are always about goddamn flights too, and it's like <laughs> you know I, I've uh, you know I don't know who if I I've never had a flight on my watch before, but I've never missed a flight, so I don't know that that's how great a demo that is. Um, yeah, maybe I need that, but. I've had a device paired with my phone that shows all notifications from my phone on my wrist and makes my wrist buzz when I, my phone gets a notification, and it doesn't doesn't seem helpful at all. It 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 doesn't doesn't good for me at all. I, I mean, I don't think this is going to be any more popular than Pebble. I, I don't think just showing notifications on your wrist is useful. I do kind of like the idea of. Uh, the Withings watch that you linked to the other day. Right. The Activite. I don't even know how you're supposed to say yeah, it. That's how I would have said it. The only thing I don't like about the thing is its name. But it's it's a nice looking watch. Right. It's not awful. Even the website, it's all attractive, fashionable people doing interesting things. And there's like the woman is even swimming on the thing. And it has a wee bit of Bluetooth and it does uh, foot f- or distance tracking. I, I think it has a swim mode too. So it, you can, and I, I know that. I think I've seen from other people who are activity trackers that swimming's always been a little difficult. Um, see, it's just you look at it though, and it, it it strikes you as it's it's not. I mean, there's no digital display; right. it, it is truly analog. But maybe that's a smarter idea. Maybe there's something to be done with that. Yeah, I don't know if it's good for everybody. Like to me, like I've said, I, I think it could sell as well as a typical four hundred dollar watch, which it, mm. in Apple's terms means not at all. But in terms of you know people who make watches could be a fine little side business you know is it is it a sort of thing that a hundred million people are going to buy no i don't think there's any chance of that is it something a couple of ten thousand people would buy sure well it kind of makes me wonder because it's just i mean it's a watch and it's got that dial and the dial is it just the needle moves from zero to a hundred and and that's the kind of thing that anybody any watchmaker could add that feature yeah i i could see that becoming like a new and you know that those sort of features becoming a bigger part of traditional watch design. Yeah, it could be that the next Seamaster has that thing in it. Well, that would be see like a Rolex would be different because a Rolex isn't electronic at all. That's uh, to me like mm-hmm. a mechanical watch might be cut out of all of this because there's no electronics at all, which is sort of the the aesthetic beauty of a mechanical watch. But like the Withings watch is a quartz watch and it takes a standard watch battery. Um but it has to be electronic to do any kind of Bluetooth. Uh, yeah, I haven't thought about that. But, but most of the watches most people buy in the world are quartz watches, not mechanical watches. 
So right. I still think that that the the highest end, you know, the mechanical automatic watches are still not going to be part of this. But the vast majority of traditional watches are quartz, and could be. I think it's time, but I think that's part of. I think the fact that it runs, it it's advertised to run for a year on a standard watch battery, is part of that whole. Hey, design is how it works. Like not having to worry about the battery more than once a year is an enormous difference from the gear watches, which by all accounts so far need to be charged daily. Like asking someone to add another device that you have to charge every day is, I think it's an enormous uh, barrier. And in some cases, a device that would take up uh, another IP address might not matter for you or me at home, but for, for uh, corporate types. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Did they need an IP address? I thought it was all Bluetooth. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I'm just I'm kind of yeah. um, like imagining future casting a little. Right. I think that we all blindly tolerate the fact that we have to charge our phones every day because the phones, in, you know, are we can't we none of us want to go back to pre iPhone smartphone life. It's worth it, even though it's an enormous hassle. Whereas at some point in the decades to come, maybe the decade to come, we're not going to have to charge our phone every day, and we're going to look back on the days when we'd go to the airport and everybody was fighting over electrical sockets and grown men, <laughs> grown men wearing suits are sitting on the floor of the airport so that they can be near <laughs> a power charger because their phone was dead at three in the afternoon. We're going to look back and think, my God, we, we live like animals. Uh, adding another device with that sort of constant need for charging is an enormous hassle and it has to add to, to make it worthwhile that people would actually go through with it. It has to add a lot of utility, I think. Whereas, oh, I don't have to take my phone out of my pocket to see who just texted me. I can just look at my wrist. It, to me, doesn't cross that barrier. It doesn't even come close. And the, the best case scenario is not you making your flight. It, the best case scenario is not... I mean, even having maps data on your wrist isn't compelling enough. Taking my phone out of my pocket is not that hard. Right. I don't think that the difference between taking my phone out of my pocket versus flipping my wrist to be watch face visible is that much of a difference. Yes, it is easier to look at my wrist. So when, you know, and I do wear a regular wristwatch when I want to see what time it is, I do just look at my wrist. I don't take out my phone, but the difference isn't that great for most things. Like it totally makes sense to me. It makes a lot of sense to me how an awful lot of people, especially as they skew younger say, I don't understand why you'd want to wear a timepiece wristwatch. I just look at my phone. Like it's not that big a difference. And that to me is the entire reason these things exist other than the fitness tracking, which there's a lot of awful, a lot more subtle solutions out there, right? If somebody's wearing a Fitbit, you don't know it. Somebody's <laughs> right, wearing a, right. a, a Galaxy Gear Live smartwatch and you know it because they've got a giant brick on their wrist. Well, if, if only they could put it on their face. All right. So I think these things are dead on arrival going nowhere. And predict that whatever if if Apple has something wrist wearable to show this fall, that it won't resemble these things at all. It's similar to the argument, uh, like you saw the I think you even linked to it the the Daily Show thing about uh, the Google Glass explorers. Yes, uh, the the ability to access that information it, it, with Google Glass without looking away from the person. It's a similar argument to being able to see the time without taking your phone out of your pocket. 
or to see your notifications without taking your phone out of your pocket. It takes a certain kind of person for that to be worthwhile. And it feels more like a thing we can do with technology rather than solving a real problem. Yeah, I, it doesn't seem, yeah, it just it seems like you've solved a very, very small problem, which is I don't want to take my phone out of my pocket. And, and you have to have your phone with you. You can't go out without your phone and still have a connection because right? you're out of Bluetooth range. So you can't just go for a run and leave your phone at home and do all the things you could do on your phone because you've lost the connection. It doesn't solve that. Like that would be a true, that would be a real problem you've solved. But I think it's uh, a social problem because the the real thing you don't want to do is take your phone out to look at a notification when you're talking to somebody. So you're not, they're not solving that problem. They're just masking it. Yeah. And if you get, if you look at your watch and it's an important notification, you're going to have to do it anyway. Right. And if it's not an important notification, why are you getting a notification for it? <laughs> and it doesn't, the, it, at no point has it ever been polite to constantly check your watch when talking to somebody. Right. One of the other things that just drives me nuts whenever I've tried Android is Android defaults to showing a lot more notifications. And all notifications put an icon up in the status bar. And I noticed during I.O., even in the demos, that the cleaned up, prepared demos for the software, the status bar was just chock full of notifications. <laughs> you know, there's like three Gmail icons because you've got three new messages for Gmail. And it, it's like, I, I can't believe that it doesn't drive people nuts. It's like walking into somebody's house and they've, they, they're just so disorganized. They got stuff all over the place, like dirty dishes out. Says I, as I look around my office and <laughs> I've got like f literally like 47 cardboard boxes from Amazon. Yeah, but if you're going to show pictures of your, your home, right. you wouldn't, you've, you've, you've cleaned it up. No. Well, we keep my office door closed. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I can't help but think that, that, it, that this is going to be another one of those things where Apple shows a wrist wearable that looks nothing like these things, does something different. And the other thing, too, and let's just to tie it all up, is go back seven years, celebrate the iPhone anniversary. The other thing about the original iPhone seven years ago is when they first shipped it, or first showed it on stage, it seemed too good to be true. There was this, and, and famously, like, RIM had, like, a meeting the next day where they, they just, their conclusion was Apple is lying about the capabilities of this device because it can't do the things that they're saying it does and last all day. <laughs> right? There's nothing about these Google, uh, Wear, or the Android Wear watches, even the, the Moto 320, uh, that makes anybody say, I can't believe that they were able to build that this year. Well, it doesn't help that they're sitting there telling everybody how it works. Like, that's Google's whole thing, is talking about, well, here's how we got this to get to, to work. Yeah, but there's no aspect of the technology that, that, that is surprising or seems like, wow, that, should, that seems like it's from the future. It's that sort of Android, Google, Linux philosophy thing. I mean, anytime you see uh, even, even the more popular Linux apps or, or the things that Google, it all has that air of people sitting around it, like, a, like a modern day version of those electronics kits you could buy at Radio Shack. <laughs> like, here's the stuff and here's what we can do with the stuff. And now I made you a radio. Right. Which is cool if it's a bunch of kids, you know, making a hobby type thing or a university project. Right. And is pointless if it's a major initiative from, a, you know, a, one of the 10 biggest corporations in the world that wants to make a product for a b billion people. Right. Like if I went over to Tish and there was a kid showing off a, a wearable that, that was like Google Glass, I, I'd, be, I'd be really impressed. Right. Be or the, or the same thing with these watches. Right. It would be very, very impressive. 
But I look at Google and like I got I got shit to do. I'm not wearing that. Right. They've presenting they're presenting this as something that maybe millions of people will be buying for Christmas this year. And I think that it's not going to happen at all. I think Apple is either A gonna show nothing and they're not gonna get into this, or B they're gonna show something that's very different and then all of a sudden next year's Google Android Wear watches will look an awful lot like the one that Apple unveiled at the <laughs> end of twenty fourteen. And then all the Google people are going to be like, yeah, but we've had, we had watches the year before too. No big deal. Just because ours totally yeah. changed in the next year and happened to change <laughs> in a way that was exactly like the Apple one. It was always going to get there. Right. This was just the, the nature of it. it. It's funny. Before the iPhone came out, there was you know, all the rumors about an, uh, an Apple phone, an iPhone. They weren't close to the mark in that nobody guessed it. Uh, but there was a lot of imagination people you look at all these mock-ups these these fake phones that people put together in photoshop and in 3d rendering software and people were people had a lot of interesting ideas of how apple might do a phone there's nothing like that for a watch no well and well the other thing though too well again i think that watch is the wrong way to look at it but there might be something like that for what you could wear on your wrist I don't know. I I've, I um, I hope Apple has something to show because I think if they do, it's going to be really interesting and thoughtful. And I think it's going to, by necessity, push the boundaries of what we consider technically possible. Uh, and there's nothing about that with the Google Wear stuff. Yeah, it doesn't feel like magic at all. No, it just feels like well, it seems like you know by now you ought to be able to make the equivalent of a two hundred, you know, an iPod Nano with with Bluetooth. Right. As of today, I'm not excited at all about Apple making a wearable thing that I put on my wrist. I, if they do it, I hope that in true Apple style, it'll be suddenly I'll be salivating over the thing. Yeah, I. Well, I'm. My optimism is is because not because I I have a good imagination of what it would do because I don't. I'm with you on that. I can't imagine what they would make that would make me want to wear it. But my, it's my confidence that they're only going to ship something if they have an answer to that question that I just right. haven't thought about. Because I honestly, I'm, the big difference from 2007 is I, the reason I was blown away is I really, I would have considered it impossible before the keynote to have a quote-unquote stripped-down version of OS X running on a phone. I just, if somebody would have said to me before, here's what I think they're going to do, is they're going to show, uh, they're going to have an iPhone and it's going to run like a stripped-down version of iOS 10 for touchscreens. And I would have, I, my response would have been, well, that's not possible yet. Maybe in the future, but not yet. They can't do that yet. Yeah, I would I would have agreed with that. So I think that the whatever Apple's going to have for your wrist is going to be that sort of thing. Like I didn't think that was possible yet, but here it is. I, I think that that's really going to come down to battery. I think that's yep. going to be the big shot. Well, and that's why I think that the weird thing. I, I think that the, the the focus on iPhone Android style LCD displays in the Android Wear is. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that's the biggest reason they only get one day of battery life. Is because well, it's got to be because the display because the display takes so much of the battery. You know, like I said with Jonas before, like his he gets terrible battery life because he runs at full brightness. The display is still it's just an enormous enormous drain. But didn't Steve Jobs say that at one point that the biggest drain on battery in the iPhone was the display? Yeah, and it's like an open secret. I mean, it's just simple. You know, it's just you're lighting up millions of little light bulbs. This is why I think that Withings Activite steampunk approach is pretty smart yeah i i don't i i would actually i'll just go so far as to say i think i'd be very surprised if apple's wearable is an iphone style display on your wrist 
I, I don't know if it'll be no display. I don't know if it's like a thing that just collects data. I, I, but I don't. I just don't see how running a display and therefore only getting one day of battery life, anything desirable comes out of that. Yeah, I don't know. All right, I think we're filled up the hour. <laughs> Let's wrap it up, Dave Whiskus. Uh, people can can find you on Twitter at what's your username this week? <laughs> at D Whiskus. D Whiskus. And uh, you got your unprofessional with uh, Jamie Newberry and yeah, um, yeah. what's that app oh um, Vesper that's it yeah I like that I like that app uh, people can check that out it's uh, on sale for the summer at two ninety nine, and uh, I, I think thanks to you 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 said for the summer um, I have, but what you wrote was until we sober up until we sober up well We'll see how that goes. Let's see how it goes. All right, I'll uh, send you the audio, and then you can get to work.